Tom Marazzo. Tom Marazzo? Marazzo? Marazzo. Tom, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Super excited to have you here. Um, I just want to start by saying that I personally, I don't know if I, I'm a changed person, but I've certainly changed the direction at which I look at my government and many other things after 2020. Who were you before 2020 and what was the catalyst that brought you to where you are today? Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's an interesting question because yeah, after 2020, uh, things in my life, my whole world perspective, uh, greatly became modified. And, um, you know, I, like many other Canadians out there, you could joke and say, oh, I'm a recovering liberal. I'm not going to watch. I keep hitting the mic. <laughs> you I'm a, you I'm, lift it up. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a recovering liberal. Like I've heard a lot of people say that. Right. And, yeah. and I used to say that, you know, I'm, I'm more of a centrist, but if really you held a gun to my head and you said, you've got to pick either liberal or conservative, what's it's going to, you get one vote. What's it going to be? I probably would have gone to the liberal side. And, um, you know, like many people in about 2020, I wasn't a big fan of Trump. You know, I just wasn't yeah. a big fan because right. I was looking at the conduct of his behavior. I, it just didn't seem professional. Okay. There's a case where, you know, he made fun of, um, a disabled reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the language that he'd been caught using, I, I just didn't like his conduct. I thought it was very juvenile for a president. For a guy who has the launch codes, you really shouldn't be conducting yourself this way, right? Totally. totally. Um, put that all aside. Uh, let's fast forward to 2024. Um, I absolutely identify as somebody who has conservative values. Um, there is no such thing as the Liberal Party anymore. I'm not entirely sure that there's much, there is a conservative party either. Was there ever? Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I, I kind of view it as the uniparty, truthfully. Um, I'm very hopeful that Trump will get back in. I am hopeful of this. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know who's going to take over this country. Uh, and I saw a really interesting view yesterday, a, a video, a guy was saying like, look, if there's an election in Canada and Trudeau wins, it still sucks. Our life continues to stop, suck. And there's nothing you can do about that. But if if the conservatives win, Pierre Polyev takes over, at least you've got a shot at change. But if it doesn't change, if he just maintains the same steady course, mm-hmm. you're no worse off than you are right now. Mm-hmm. 100%. So give the conservatives a chance. And, I, and strangely enough, that's not a bad argument to be perfectly blunt. But because right now I've said on social media that I'm politically homeless. So to, to come back to your mm-hmm. original question... I started off looking at the view from a, just just slightly more of a liberal view where I think, you know, be responsible with people's tax dollars, get out of their homes, definitely get out of their bedrooms. Um, I wasn't, you know, a gun lobby guy. I just thought, you know, have a gun, be responsible. Um, but I don't think people should have open carry in Canada. Uh, you know, I think if you're down, government should be an avenue to get back up on your feet. But I don't think that you should sell your soul just because you got some help from the government. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was kind of really 
down the middle, I wanted to take the best of both worlds in terms <clears throat> of, of government. You know, I left the military in 2015. I went back to school. I did a four-year degree in software. And I got out right away and I became a teacher at Georgian College in, in Barrie. And so I, I kind of knew that for the rest of my life, my professional career, I wanted to just go back into some form of public service because that's really what education to me was, was public service. And then, you know, everything was great. Like I, I think I was really on a professional level, the happiest I'd ever been when I was a teacher at a college. It was, it was a lot of fun. I really, I was excited to go and do that every day. And then COVID hit. And then, you know, I, did you guys ever see the movies, any of the Zeitgeist movies, Peter Joseph? No. Okay. I can't say I have. And I've been asked this many times. Right. They're worth watching. There's, there's three that are the main ones and they put a fourth one out, which is a complete departure from the original three. Um, so the first Zeitgeist movie was really in 2007, I think was the first time I, I intuitively knew there was something wrong with government, with society, uh, the way the structure of the world actually worked that really articulated that suspicion that I had. So I kind of carried that through for the rest of my military career. And then, you know, I had the four years of the software degree. I start teaching, everything's fine. But the day I heard that there was going to be the first lockdown, everything that was, that I learned in 2007 with that, everything came like right to my doorstep. And so I wasn't fooled for a minute. I didn't believe even on the first day of hearing about COVID that this was a, a deadly virus. I didn't really? think this was a, from day one. And um, I felt mentally prepared. Now, there's a big component of the second and third movie of the Zeitgeist movies. They talk about the banking industry. So in my mind, I was always mentally preparing for a complete collapse of the economic system in, in all the first world countries of the world. So I knew that there was something out there on the edge, like this mathematically, I have a master's degree in business, so I understand, you know, economics, finance and all that stuff. So, you know, mathematically our system of finance must collapse like that's a that's a mathematical certainty if we if we forget crypto we forget blockchain we just stay with this fiat currency system this system must mathematically collapse so mentally i was always prepared in in the back of my mind i'm always thinking okay how are you and your family protected from certain societal events so when covid came along it, it actually sped up my timeline. I thought this was going to be much further into the future. Mm. COVID really <clears throat> advanced uh, the planning that I needed to do. So when it did happen, um, I immediately started making contingency plans, which is what the military taught me to do. So to say that I was, um, you know, doing a full military planning cycle on what to do, not, not accurate because with the military, you have, um, you have a known adversary. Okay. You've got, let's say the Germans, the Japanese, the Taliban, you've got a, an adversary who has tactics training uh, in procedures. They have a doctrine that they follow. Well, in this case, I don't know who my adversary was. I like, I had no idea who was running, orchestrating 
this, this pandemic. And so it's really hard to plan when you don't under, you, you can't even identify who your adversary is. And if you try to say that it's your government, if you try to speak those words to your friends, they're just looking at you like you've got six heads. Mm-hmm. So how do you plan, make arrangements for an adversary that you don't even know anything about them and you have no allies? You don't have a, a fire team partner with you in this. And I had spoken to a few friends I'd known, you know, almost my whole career. None of them wanted to have anything to do with these conversations. Why so do you think that is? What is that? They bought into the fear. Um, and like, look at the fear that the, the media was pumping into people. Yeah, fear is a good word. And that's the word yeah. I use. Yeah. But why? It isolated people. It, it puts you in your home to the point where like you don't have to convince people or you don't have to force people to stay in their home and to be isolated from other families in your own family. All you have to do is give them a justification why they will self-imprison themselves. And why was this? They were trying to... Because if you talk, if you communicate with other people and share your suspicions and your ideas, uh, maybe your beliefs, Mm -hmm. then you can unify. You can push back. Right. Right. You you can get organized and then you can protect yourself. Divided they fall sort of thing. Yes. And and I think that's the whole point. I mean, the, the media constantly... Every day, it started off with, oh, there was uh, 10 cases of COVID, uh, 10 confirmed cases. And then it was, <laughs> there was 20, then it was 200, then it was 2,000, then it was 10,000 cases, 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 cases. It's like, okay, use your brain. What's a case? Oh, well, you tested positive. Okay. What does that mean? Like, talk to me about actual hospitalizations talk to me about intensive care units talk to me about actual real serious cases and then i want you to compare that to influenza mm-hmm. because the covid and influenza both actually had very relatively the, the same statistics i think i think uh influenza had um i think it's 0.004 percent chance of you become a a fatality and COVID was 0.003 or some ridiculous number, like very low, like per population. It was very, very low. So less. Much less. Well, okay. I can't say much less. Or let's say almost even. Yeah. But if you almost even, yeah. But if you look at the actual, like they were using the case count to terrorize the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. you know, so everything coming out of the anchor man's mouth was just being gobbled up by, by people that, didn't question it because the fear and the anxiety of leaving your house. And of course they, they were really great, very masterful, actually convincing people that, you know, they were going to kill your grandmother. You're going to kill your grandfather. Like you're a threat to the survival of your own family members. So people voluntarily went inside and when you're bored and you've got nothing to do and you're, you're scared about something, it's human nature to find information. Okay. So when you see people, they, you know, they come under fear, the eyes get big, right? The adrenaline pumps, but your eyes get big. Your pupils will, will open up so that you can take in more information, right? And it's no different than people sat there in front of their TVs or their phones. And they were taking in information who was providing the information. It was the liberal funded media and, and, you know, I don't want to say just the liberals, cause you got to remember most of the premiers across Canada and all the provinces were all conservative. Mm-hmm. 
and the media was just building this narrative and it was being supported by every level of government in this country. Was it happening in the United States at the same time? I mean, it was, right? It was. And it, Europe and wherever? Yes, it was. Uh, every first world country, it's, it's interesting because if you look at the comparison between the first world countries and maybe um, poor third world countries, there was a difference. Um, not a huge difference, but I'll, I'll give it a, India as an example. They actually took one of their, uh, their states. They have either states or provinces in India. Um, I mean, they have a population of 1.4 billion people. Mm -hmm. And one of their states or provinces actually gave out ivermectin and vitamin packs to their population. And they saw an amazing recovery from COVID. Like they didn't have nearly the same problems. Whereas you, you take uh, North America, uh, we locked everybody down. Uh, we ignored ivermectin and all the other uh, protocols that go along with ivermectin that were, you know, proven to be effective. And you saw other places though, like Florida, where they did initially lock down, there was masks. And then after the first sort of cycle of that, they said, we're, we're not doing this masking. It doesn't work. I mean, it says on the side of the box that, you know, for a mask, it actually says on the side not to be used to stop viral transmission. It says that on the box, but, but nobody ever bothered to look at the box. You know, people were just so full of fear that they went along with whatever the anchor man told them. And, and that was to me really difficult because I learned in that first year of COVID that the people that I believed, you know, in the 1930s and forties in, in Germany, who would have resisted the Nazi occupation would have been freedom fighters would have stood up against that actually turned out to be people that would have absolutely 100% collaborated with the Germans. 100%. And, and then, and then the people out there that were, were not really like just unassuming people, they were the ones who stood up in Canada. They were the ones who I would have thought, no, you would have been a collaborator with the Nazi turns out to be, no, they were fierce freedom fighters and we're not going to be told what to do with their bodies by the government. So it was a big surprise. And, uh, I mm. can't, I can't sort of narrow down a demographic <clears throat> of like, a, okay, you're, you're a blue collar worker or you're a PhD. Mm -hmm. You can't really narrow it down. Everybody was individually different. And I had this one working theory that I can't test or prove, but it seemed to me that everybody who had some form of a childhood trauma and, and grew up and learned not to trust adults were very resistant to the propaganda coming from the anchorman. So a lot of people that I met, I remember telling this to a retired cop. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I said this to a retired OPP officer. He's like, why do you think some people do it and some uh, fall for it and some don't? And I said, I think it's because, uh, there are people that have had that at a very young age learned that they couldn't trust adults. There was an adult who betrayed them somehow or did something to them where as they grew up, they became very mistrusting of authority. And, uh, he's like, man, the hair just stood up on the, on the back of my neck. And he admitted to me at that point that he had a lot of childhood trauma. And I've told that to many, many people. And they're all like, geez, that's like everybody I know has a story from their childhood. Right. Except for two people. Both of those two people were doctors and it was both of their fathers who had the trauma.
and talk to their sons about what they believed was going on. So they listened to the fathers. So that, that's the only two exceptions that I had. But I, yeah, I'm sure I could go out there and find lots of people who have childhood trauma that were willing, you know, they're on their seventh booster by now. Sure. So I, I can't <clears throat> test, I can't test the theory. <laughs> seven, but, seven boosters. Yeah. But like, why, why is it though that some people were resistant to it? And why did some people just conf- That still yeah. confuses me because, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, some people just don't seem to have fear. They just seem to have ignorance or mm. to me, I go, are you an idiot? Or, you know, there's a, there's a whole whack of reactions I have when I hear some people in the way that they reacted. Um, for me, when, when all this hit, uh, a lot of what you kind of explained, sort of, I felt the same thing. I wasn't a Trump guy. I'm sitting here going, what the hell? This is a big joke. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny. Um, and now I'm sitting here going, God, we got to have Trump back. Um, and and I'm also, I'm rooting for Polyev, but at the same time, I'm with you. I'm all I'm going, well, it's all the same entity. They all, I, I, I don't know, but when it happened, I I was I was afraid. I, I had this immediate reaction like, oh, everyone in this country is going to be dead in three months and or, or half the world or whatever. There's just the way they came out with it. And then just a whole whack of, uh, it was just a pattern of false shit just obvious lies to me it seemed so obvious mm-hmm. it just was so obvious that i i just didn't understand why the guy next to me didn't feel the same way i did so are you are you joking yeah it, w- it was incredible to me because when they started you know sectioning off parts at walmart and <laughs> determining what was critical what was not and it's like <clears throat> the product is already on the shelf it's in the same air right now that 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 vital thing over there that you're selling right. is they're all in the same space here. Okay, yeah. germs germs are not that smart where they go, oh, that's baby clothing. I can't touch that. <laughs> right, and in this idea that um, you could walk into a restaurant, you had to walk there with your mask on, but COVID was so intelligent that it knew that when you sat down to eat your food, yeah. you were off. Hands off. off. Yeah, hands off. That that guy's eating, <laughs> but you had to put it on to go pee. Yeah, totally. Right, that's how smart this virus was. Yeah, we we'd go to we'd go to set, and it would be the whole crew's wearing masks, mm-hmm. um, unless you were an actor. If you were an actor and you had to be in front of the camera, yeah, COVID doesn't. Then, affect you know, you. No. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah, just as long as the makeup uh, person is wearing a mask, <clears throat> you're groovy. COVID's not here. Don't yeah. worry about it. I, I did work at the very beginning uh, on a show with. Uh, you know, Nolan and a couple of their guys. Nolan, there he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, we'll I was, yeah. So, you know, in between shots, you've got your goggles on and I got to wear this mask and now my goggles are fogging up. So I got the mask over my nose and some kid, I mean, 20 years old, mm-hmm. getting minimum wage to walk around and harass people to make sure that their masks are on. I'm like, I think I know me. that guy. I'm yeah. like, this is a safety <laughs> issue, man. Like when they want me, I need to be able to see where I'm going. Big time. Anyway, that was, I think that was the last time I worked during COVID until um, just before Christmas. I, I, I worked back on, you know, as SSE, as a SWAT guy. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no mask, no crap. You know, everybody just was enjoying themselves. You Thank know, God. And, oh, yeah. Because I, I told Nolan, I said, Nolan, I can't work if uh, at this point after the combo, I'm like, I can't work if there's going to be testing or masking. Um I'm just not going to do it. I can't, 
morally agree to doing something like that. So I'll forgo the money. I need the money, but I, not that much. I think right. I did 400 tests. Oh my God. I had, yeah, same I had here. to have same somewhere here. two a day. Yeah. Uh, the, the 20, 2020 sucked. There was yeah. no work. Yeah. Now here, now having said that, I think that that is where I also had this advantage of keeping my common sense and, uh, all this in line mm -hmm. is just that some people weren't affected. I have friends that their lives really weren't affected. They're like web designers or whatever, and they didn't really have to budge much. Um, but my life took a hit, and I wondered, am I going to work again? What am I going to do? So I had to really think through this shit. Mm -hmm. um, and just thinking through it yeah. you know, got me here. Um, Buck, I was going to say something, but... I bet it was important. Yeah. <laughs> It'll come back. Yeah. But It'll you, come anyway. back. Do you, know, do, do you notice a difference between uh, generations, like my generation and my son's generation? Um, I know people my age or older where fear plays a huge role. Yeah. You know, they're coming to the end of their life, and if they get sick, yeah. it might be sooner than you think. But these kids... I think that's the lingering fear. But the, That's but, the one fear that people still yeah. seem to but have. But I don't understand like, the 30 to 35 to 40 year yeah. yeah that are deathly afraid of this thing yeah yeah I, like, I, see beginning of this whole thing so uh my my <clears> teenage <throat> son he's uh he's had a very long extensive um medical history like he's had two open heart surgeries by the time he was three um various other things so in the very beginning of this yeah i was i was not concerned for me i was very concerned for him sure uh, so I didn't see him from the beginning of COVID until his birthday a few months later. And cause he lives, uh, with his mother and his birthday, I've never missed a birthday with either of my kids. And I was like, I don't care what this is. I'm not going to miss one of my kids' birthdays for this shit. So I drove to his house. I never touched him. I never hugged him. Nothing. But I sat on his front lawn. It was raining. It was in the spring and uh, I sat on an umbrella with a blanket on a lawn chair. But I was like, if this, what it takes is, is going to be what it takes to spend my birth, the, my son's birthday together, then that's what I'm going to do. I don't care. Um, the army's put me through a hell of a lot worse than just sitting there under yeah, an umbrella. I think so. Okay. So, <laughs> um, that, that was the birthday, but I didn't see him for a couple of months. And that to me was, um, uh, when I think about that, that's a little bit angering to me, but I know other people had it much, much worse than I did. So my fear wasn't anything to do with my own personal safety. It was about my son. And I think that's legitimate because that first strand of, of COVID was pretty awful to a lot of people. And I'm not sure that honestly, he, he might've been able to survive that if he'd have got it. Hmm. So you know, that was, that was a scary time. Um, but as this thing mutated and I, I have friends, I have a good friend of mine who, uh, was a doctor in a hospital. He got fired three weeks after I did from his hospital because he wouldn't comply with the mandates, uh, especially the, the, you know, the injection. Cause he's like, it's experimental injection. You know, I'm not, going to participate in your experiment. You haven't done proper clinical trials. You can't meet the standard of informed consent. And I, he was shocked that they were even bringing this to him. 
that, you know, a lot of medical people were shocked at the conduct of the medical society um, or the medical community. But it was the CPSO, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, that were really like the Gestapo going after the doctors. These people are insane. Now, who's pressuring them? Government of Canada, Health Canada, uh, you know, the premiers, the uh, public health officers, they're getting all the pressure. Uh, but they're not a body that does actual science. They're like a police agency of doctors who commit malfeasance. So, you know, you make an accusation of a doctor, then they come in, they investigate. This was the CPSO getting involved in your treatment, your relationship, your treatment plan between you and your doctor. It's like, you guys don't make new science. You don't create protocols. What you're doing is you're interfering in that relationship between a doctor and the patient. You have no business being in, you know, part of the treatment plan. Uh, when a doctor commits malfeasance, then you guys get involved and then you investigate that. They were completely subverting the whole system. And so that put a lot of doctors in, a, in an enormous amount of pressure and a lot of fear. And a lot of the cowardly doctors in this country, they didn't push back. They're like, whatever, it's on you. I don't care. It's like, didn't protect your patient because you caved to the pressure of, of this, the CPSO. And I think that that is just a, a grotesque form of cowardice. But we can get into that all day long because every, every institution within our society caved to that same level of pressure and really displayed uh, an enormous amount of institutional cowardice. The police are like probably the worst ones, even the military. And I'm not talking about physical courage that you would face in a, in a physical, mm -hmm. violent, kinetic energy type of an event. I'm, I'm talking about m moral courage. Like every society, every institution in our society collapsed like a McDonald's ashtray and like on the first day of COVID, it was shocking. You know, I, I remember being in a meeting during the convoy and um, we had two doctors in there and we had a couple of lawyers in there and um, we're all in this room. Like there was, you know, I'm an army guy, uh, software teacher. Then you had retired police or police that resigned, police that were retired. You had doctors, lawyers, uh, nurses, PhDs that were in there that were scientists. Everybody's in this room. And... I stopped the meeting when it was my turn to speak. And I said, I, I just want to take a minute to reflect on who's in this room right now. So, because at the beginning of this pandemic, when things were becoming very tyrannical, we, the public who were awake to what was going on, all believed that the doctors would put a stop to this. The doctors would intervene and they didn't, they, they didn't at all. They didn't protect the public. They didn't abide by informed consent. They just went along with everything they were told to do. So then when the vaccine mandates came out, we thought, okay, the lawyers will put a stop to that. And they didn't. In fact, the lawyers were the ones who wrote the legislation to make it, let's say, legal for the governments to do what they did to people in all the bylaws and the mandates. That was all written by lawyers. I said, but I'm sitting in a room full of people right now with doctors and lawyers who are pushing back finally. And it's two years too late, maybe, but at least you're here. You might be late, but let's just celebrate that you showed up at all. And so we have to recognize that even though that every institution in our society collapsed, 
under the, the pressure of, of different government entities. There are individuals in every profession that did push back. And the early adopters got steamrolled. You know, Krista Nagel, she's a nurse in London, Ontario, not far from here. She got steamrolled. You know, she owes, she's twice two cases where she's gone to court and the courts have ruled against her. And she's got hundreds of thousands of dollars in judgment against her because she was a nurse. She got fired. You know, she's lost everything. But she was one of the first people who pushed back. Jesus. And the system just <clears throat> destroyed her life. And, you know, she's a wife. She's got kids. Um, and there's many, many examples of that all across this country and in the U.S., in Europe. So, you know, you look at the the power of fear. And, and I like to believe that, you know, courage is contagious, but so is cowardice. And, and now we have a pandemic of fear uh, inside all those institutions. Yes. All the people that were not afraid are now outside those institutions and we can't rely on them. Yeah, they got pushed out. They got pushed out. And, I, and I've always encouraged, especially on the policing side, I've always encouraged, you know, the 5% maybe that did push back and hold their <clears throat> ground in their police departments to stay in, fight back, try to climb the ranks and take back your police department. But when you're talking, you know, seven guys in a police department out of 150 officers, there's only so much you can expect them to do. Well, a friend of mine out of, ha out of Hamilton is uh, a police officer and uh, told me that once the VAX was introduced, uh, all the veteran guys that they need um, were like, well, I don't need this. So we're out of here. Yeah. yeah. Early retirement. Retired. Yep. That's true. I've heard that story all across Canada. Um, senior people like doctors, we're hearing about doctors right now. Mm -hmm. Um, they're looking at it and going, I'm eligible for retirement and I can't function. Like there are too many patients, not enough hours in a day for even family doctors. They're shutting down clinics all over the place mm -hmm. because they just can't keep up with it. Um, my sister's a nurse. Um, and she was telling me this morning. She's supposed to, I think the ratio was about, she'd look at like four or five critical or, you know, patients on her ward. And she was getting upwards of eight, you know, double what she's supposed to be looking after. And that's in a hospital. Because of the lack of personnel in the hospital. Yes. Yes. Lack. <clears throat> so every, like, I'm not a, I'm not a religious person. Like I'm not, uh, I don't go to church. Um, if I have to identify with a religion, it's, you know, on the Christian side, I'm mm -hmm. a Canadian. That's part of the heritage that I was brought up with. But I expected that the Christian churches were going to actually identify with the story of Jesus or people that were persecuted in the origins of, you know, Christianity. And a lot of them, I, the vast majority of even the churches collapsed and bought into the fear. And uh, with the few exceptions, you know, Pastor Hildebrand, he's in Elmer. Uh, he, the last time I checked, he, his church was fined over $270,000. And he actually offered, he, act, he said to them, if you reduce the amount that you want me to pay, I'll donate, I think it was $100,000 to some charity. And they said, no, we want the money. So it's not oh, about money, all right? Like, it, it's not about morality. It was never about protecting people either. Um, it was it was protecting your own ass in mm -hmm. a lot of cases, but it wasn't about protecting the public. 
So why did they do this? Why is this a thing? Why, why, why did all this happen? Depopulation. That's that I'm convinced it's depopulation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This whole COVID thing is a smokescreen. You know, World War II, the Germans lined people up, put them in a gas chamber, executed them. In this case, you don't have to put people on trains. They will get in their cars and they'll drive to the lineup outside on the street with a mobile clinic with a shot that's, you know, 50-50, whether it's going to, well, not 50-50, but there's a high chance you're going to be injured from that thing. And you're going to drive yourself and voluntarily roll up your arm. And you're going to take that shot. So you want to depopulate the the public. You just got to convince them it's in their, it's for their own good. And that's what the fear was about. You convince the public that they should participate in this medical experiment to save grandma and grandpa. Now at this point, mm. maybe I'm crazy, but um, it seems like. Well, if you haven't asked yourself if you're crazy in the last four yeah. years. Well, <laughs> Sometimes yeah. I feel like it, depending yeah. on who I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, they're kind of hiding in plain sight. I mean, and they're pretty visible now. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point are they just going to say, fuck it, and we're, we're going to bust out the train in the gas chamber again? I don't think they have to. To be perfectly honest at this point, if you look at the uptake of uh, the actual medical experiment that a lot of people have taken, you, you don't really have to apply pressure to the public at this point. You just have to wait. You have to wait for this experimental injection to do its thing. So it, are there numbers right now uh, that would indicate the, how many people have been injured by this and how many people may have died? You know, the last most significant important <clears throat> number that I've seen posted on social media, and I, I can't verify it, but mm-hmm. it was um, Edward Dowd. He's an American. Um, so I think 57,000 Americans were killed in the 10 years of the Vietnam War. Okay. So that's, you know, all the combat deaths attributed to the Vietnam War over 10, 000, or 10 years. Dowd has already come out with the numbers from last year, and he said we're at 61,000 Americans killed in one year by the COVID-19 vaccine. And it's only going to get worse when you're looking at, there's roughly about 12 different illnesses that have been, I, I can't, you, that's, that's the geniusness of this whole thing is that you can't directly attribute the, the vaccine to a certain illness. And when doctors are coming out and saying, I've never seen blood clots do that before, or I've never seen this type of disease before. And they try to loosely tie it to a known disease that's out there. Um, They're looking at it and it's like, there's enough wiggle room to say, well, it wasn't the shot. It's something different. Right. And, and statistician fans always say this stupid saying of causation correlation crap. I don't believe that at all. Um, They're hiding it in plain sight in such a way that it's, plausibly deniable it's like you can't say that blood clots were caused by that vaccine can you it's like well no but i have a theory based on the fact that 50 people have come to my clinic with blood clots this week right Mm -hmm. so it is hiding in plain sight and the worst part is people that are vaccine injured are even defending the medical community they're defending the vaccine 
they're saying, well, it's something else. Like they're, they're refusing to believe that, you know, on Monday when they woke up, they were perfectly healthy. They took a shot and by the afternoon they've got, you know, Epstein-Barr disease. Right. But they're, they can't, no, it wasn't the shot. I think it's, I think it's to some degree human nature um, to have an inability to admit a mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm so for, for this, I'll get them all, I'll get seven boosters. Mm -hmm. And then up until two years ago, I don't think personally I've ever known anybody to have ALS. Mm. I know that my, my wife's, grandfather died of ALS. Mm -hmm. I know it exists. But we have three friends in the last two years diagnosed with ALS. Mm -hmm. One has died and two are on their way. Anyway, it's really disturbing. Yeah, and it just seems like, you know, one of these people in particular I've discussed this with and, uh, you know, uh, this this particular person went from from get your vaccine to I'm not sure if what I did was right. Um, so you admit the mistake after the fact. Yeah. Like and after it, you get it. So yeah, it's uh, yeah. There's a lot of that. Yeah. There's a lot of remorse for participating in this. <clears throat> um, the difficulty with that is, you know, you can try to warn people. You know, at the very beginning, a lot of us questioned it and said, I don't think this is a good idea. And I remember saying to somebody like, okay, if I'm wrong, the worst that happens is I get COVID and now I have natural immunity. I build up antibodies. That's the worst thing that happens. If you're right, you took a vaccine, you're protected from it, right? Everything's good. But if you're wrong, it's undoable. There's nothing you can do after that point if you take that experimental injection that's going to modify your DNA. So, you know, you got to look at the risk analysis of this and, and you say to somebody like, there's a reason it takes between seven and 10 years to have a medication approved through Health Canada, like through the processes, through, um, you know, all the studies. So there was, you know, there's... Um, what do you call them? The, uh, clinical trials, you know, there's three phases of a clinical trial. There's a reason it takes so many years. You start with animals, you progress, you have a small clinical trial phase one, you proceed to two. If one is okay, you proceed to three. If two is okay. But we just actually, for one of the Canadian vaccines that has been pushed, we just finished phase three in December, right? The, the public on mass became part of the phase three trial. So what if it doesn't work? You know, what if phase three was a failure? Are you going to recall it? Are you going to tell um, the millions of Canadians that, oh, that thing that we coerced you into doing, oops, sorry. And we have no recourse. And you have no recourse because there is a vaccine fund out there, but <clears throat> the it was reported recently in the media that the vast majority of the money dedicated to the vaccine injury fund in Canada was actually all absorbed through administration. So what's actually left over for the people is nothing in comparison to what it took to set that all up and to give in terms of salaries and administrative fees and all that stuff. What was the point of that? Yeah. Now, um, you, you talked about the blood clot. Have you have you spoken to anybody uh, very specifically about these 
very interesting looking blood clots. I was at a presentation a uh, year and a half ago, uh, not, not long after the convoy, I was at a church in Woodville, Ontario, and a woman who, you know, she works with blood um, in a hospital, got up and showed pictures of what she was seeing under a microscope. And they look like uh, red pearls and all these different shapes that they were seeing with the blood. And she said, we, we've never seen this before. You know, she looked like she was older than I was. I'm 50, so I'm saying she's got at least a 30-year career. And she's like, we have never seen anything like this before. Now, what and did she describe them as? Basically, like, they looked more like a structure, like, um, like pearls, a like a string of pearls. They looked very mechanical. They didn't look natural. They looked more, you know, man-made type of thing. So I, I can't really speak to that other than this is what she's presenting and this is what she's saying. And, you know, you see a lot of stuff on social media. Um, who, who posted a picture of, oh, uh, Dr. Chris Shoemaker. Um, he was recently, he lost his license. He's been vaccinated, but he lost his license because he's been pushing back against the CPSO quite hard for the last uh, year and a half. And uh, he showed pictures of blood clots. Uh, on his social media today. I know Chris, I've met him many times. We've, we've talked about stuff and, um, these things look like strips of bacon that my first thought was, why is Chris posting his breakfast? But it was actually blood clots that were pulled out of arteries. It's pretty disgusting stuff. Um, and a lot of the doctors, uh, um, Ryan Cole, he's a pathologist from the United States and we saw a presentation of him, um, at least six months, six or more months ago. And he was showing a lot of the findings, a lot of the data that he was seeing as a pathologist. And unfortunately, when you're seeing the pathologist, it's kind of too late for you. Mm -hmm. Um, but he was sharing a lot of his data at this thing that we, this presentation we saw in Toronto. Um, I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. Um, my girlfriend is, you know, she went to medical school in Europe. Um, as a dentist, she understands this stuff. So when I have those questions, I go to her and I mm -hmm. say, Hey, what, what the hell is this thing about? Then it's like, I get the medical answer and it would be almost like me giving her a software answer and right. it doesn't usually work out. So <laughs> I'm just like, give me the Coles notes. And when I talk about software, software, I just see the glazing. I'm looking at her right there and she's smiling. So, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I get it. Well, listen, on a lighter note, um, can we just kind of shift to another subject real quick? Sure. Tell me about Tom Morazzo. Where are you from? Niagara Falls. You're from Niagara yeah, Falls. Yeah, I was born and raised in between Niagara Falls and, and St. Catharines. I spent time in both cities growing up. Okay. Um, did you ever get down to the falls? Or did you One not care? Or they're just boring? <laughs> <laughs> we meet, we meet. Funny, you know, I thought like in 1999, August 1st, 1999 was the first time I ever saw the ocean in, with my own eyes. It's the first time I saw the actual Atlantic Ocean. Okay. And I was like, wow, now I get what people experience when they see Niagara Falls. Because to me, it's like. Oh, I see. It's yeah. just a ditch. It's a big giant ditch with the water going over right. it. Right. Whoop-de-doo. Yeah. And uh, I, yeah, was, I just, okay, I get just it makes now. me thirsty. Yeah, I get it now. When, when Rhonda and I travel, people say, oh, I'd love to go to Ontario. We want to go to Niagara Falls. And I say, well, we live an hour from there and we go to Niagara Falls and we go to a restaurant 
and have dinner, but we yeah, all never, yeah. never look at the water. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> on, on it, I, I tell people, like, get a postcard of the falls, and yeah. that's all you need to know. Totally. That you're done. <laughs> and you're, you're done. And you stay dry. You're dry, yeah. <laughs> it's, it is, you do get soaked from the yeah. mist coming off of there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I went to high school in, uh, in Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there. I played football and basketball. Let's leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> um, then I went to Niagara College and I did uh, three year, the three-year technology program in construction engineering technology and architecture. Uh, they don't even have the program anymore. They just split it between civil engineering and architectural technology. Um, and I, in high school, I joined the reserve. So I was technically still 16. Okay. Because uh, my birthday's in April, so in February I enrolled in in the military. Actually, that, right, that was almost, actually my next question. Yeah, almost <laughs> like thirty four years ago to the day. Okay. Um, wow. So I, I enrolled in the reserves uh, at sixteen because I'm in my seventeenth year, so I could kind of squeak through. So I started basic training when I was about sixteen. Hated it. I hated it. What? I, I was infantry. I yeah, but it. didn't you voluntarily join it? Yeah, I did. I did. You know why? Because I wanted to be a pilot. Okay. And I'm like, okay, the, there's military here in my hometown. Yeah. I'm going to see if I like the lifestyle. Okay. Right? If I like that that stuff. Top Gun had come out a few years earlier. I wanted to be a pilot. That's all I wanted we to just do. Talked we just this. talked yeah. about that. Yeah. What, guys wanting to become pilots because of Top Gun. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that, that you know, Iron Eagle, Top Gun, a couple other movies. I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to do. My favorite show as a kid was uh, Airwolf. It was about oh, a helicopter, right? Yeah. So that's, I'm like, that's what I want. I and saw Toy Story and wanted to be a cowboy. <laughs> there you go. Not a jetpack guy. No. Space wow. Ranger. Yeah. That would have been cool. Yeah. But when I was in um, grade four, the space shuttle flew over top of uh, Niagara Falls on the back of a 747. Oh, and wow. I remember my the hair standing up on my arm going, that is the coolest thing Whoa. I've ever seen. Yeah, that's cool. So I, I kind of fell in love with aviation. And so... I, all they had was the infantry, so, or artillery, but I'm like, nah, I'm not doing that. So I joined the infantry, that unit, the Lincoln and Welland in St. Catharines had a reconnaissance platoon. So of, of the eight and a half years I spent in the infantry, five of that was in a reconnaissance platoon. So that was like operating in, you know, three, four man debts, sneaking and peeking, not really getting into the big infantry fights. You're sneaking and peeking, getting information, reporting back. So I, I really enjoyed that. And the, the group of guys I worked with at that time in that platoon were exceptionally good. You know, they had their careers during the day, but on, you know, the training nights and weekends, they were out there, they were pretty hardcore soldiers. And so at the time you had to kind of keep up that standard. You wanted to make sure that you weren't the weak link in that unit. You know, we were only a platoon of, uh, 30 guys, um, and, and how old are these guys? They're all ages. Like some of them were cops. Some of them oh, were, okay. were, you know, every, like, you know, all young, I would say, um, other than the regular force people that were attached to the unit. Um, like my platoon commander was a regular force infantry captain, uh, ranger qualified in the States. Um, the warrant officer in that platoon, he was a, a Canadian advanced reconnaissance uh, qualified guy lot of experience like these guys were doing a lot of reconnaissance in europe in in the germany days so in 1997 i i graduated from college but in the year prior 1996 i did uh for six weeks i did my assault pioneer course so it's the infantry's version of a combat engineer and on that course i met this guy named james top 
so James and I, uh, we hit it off immediately. And, uh, you know, the, there was three of us, there was me, James, and a guy named Jeff. And so I really liked what I was doing. It was the first time I ever used explosives, you know, did mine warfare type of stuff, uh, booby traps, you know, building bridges, building bunkers, doing a lot of really cool mm. engineer stuff, but as an infantry soldier. So I graduated in 97, but 1998, I got accepted into the combat engineers, but because I was doing it full time, I took my commission and I became an officer because I thought I don't want to be doing this stuff as a, as a non-commissioned member where you, is this still with the reserves? No. So I joined 98. I, I rolled enrolled into the regular force army okay. as an officer in the engineers. Cause I wanted to take what I learned in school, what I did in the infantry and what I learned as a assault pioneer, uh, and everything else and put that into my full-time career. It's stuff I wouldn't have gotten if I tried to join the infantry as a, as a full-time guy. And I was looking long-term. It's like, is the infantry really going to be something good on my resume when I want to get out? Like, is there a lot of jobs out there where you, you know, to carry a rifle? Yeah. You, right. you close with and destroy the enemy uh at walmart no that doesn't it's not gonna well, work soon. right right soon yeah. <laughs> so i i thought go into a, a a role within the military that has some civilian application because i could then uh transition to construction engineers right I, i'm always thinking long term about my resume in case i get injured and i have to leave or i just decide to hang it up or i stick it out i retire but i still have a few years left to mm-hmm. to earn income so that's what I did. I went in as an engineer officer, you know, went to my regiment in Petawawa, did a, my regimental tour. Um, so anyway, the re- I'll, we'll come back to why I mentioned James, because hopefully the, you guys and the viewers know who James Top is, because a year and a half ago, James walked all the way across Canada. Oh, yes. Starting two years ago today. Uh, oh man he, he walked all the way across Canada so 4300 kilometers 131 days and arrived in Ottawa and um, you know just I knew James and so when he started marching I, I hadn't seen him in years and I'm looking at him on the video I'm like that looks like Jimmy <laughs> you know that looks a lot like Jimmy but he you know he's older I'm older he he slimmed down a lot and uh, so I realized it was him because he has a very distinct uh, sound when he speaks. Um, great sense of humor. One of the funniest guys I've ever met. So I'm like, oh my God, that is him. And uh, just through connections, I end up on the phone with him. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> what's up? You know, And he starts telling me what's going on, what he's doing. By that time, I had been uh, one of the five original founding members of Veterans for Freedom. And the, the five of us who started it decided, okay, we're going to support James in his walk across Canada. And so we did. So when he got into, um, Manitoba and then into Ontario, uh, veterans for freedom were a big part of that. A lot of our members were there marching with him and, and helping him throughout the whole entire thing. Uh, when he got to Ottawa, um, the whole thing was all the security, the marshalling of all the, the, the people that were showed up to Ottawa on that last day on the 30th of June to support James. Like we had, I think close to a thousand people that marched with James the last 20 kilometers. Wow. Yeah. I remember seeing a lot of this. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, 
Veterans for Freedom, we all showed up wearing our shirts and we were guiding in. We basically formed the, the public into a group of a bunch of platoons. And then we had one V for F member um, just sort of keeping the pack together, right? And we got into Ottawa or in, around the National War Memorial. And then there was at least 2,000 more people standing there waiting for him to arrive. So it was a pretty big event. Yeah. Um, so the reason James was walking mm -hmm. was... Ma mandates Copy. because so, you know a year ago yesterday uh was when i announced at the convoy that we were going to peacefully withdraw um and that we were recommending that the truckers do that but we also said that we can't tell them what to do right but we're recommending that they do peacefully withdraw from the city today the next day james left um british columbia and started his journey across the country the next day. So he did a promotional video saying he was going to do this and he was wearing his uniform, which he later got charged and court-martialed for wearing the uniform. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, um, he had, a, I think, a $4,000 fine. And within hours, we had a fundraiser and we raised enough money to pay off that fine. So, you know, he marched across this country to raise awareness because here's the thing, James has done he did five tours he did two combat tours in afghanistan he was he was in uh the Medak pocket so 90 92 93 in croatia and it was the heaviest fighting canadian soldiers had been involved in since the korean war and james was there so he did a full year in croatia at that time so he's got basically of the five tours four of them were combat tours and he, he was in Macedonia during 9-11. So he's done five tours for this country. He's a advanced recce, master sniper, you know, 27 years in the regular force. But he had an opportunity to move to BC, to Chilliwack, and take over, become the range warden for the RCMP. They have a, a shooting range there. And he's like, I'm going to hang up the uniform, take this job, collect my pension, join the reserves, and parade on, you know, train on weekends. And that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Well, the mandates came out. He was told, you've got to get it if you want to stay in the army. He said, no. RCMP said, if you want to keep your job, you've got to participate in this medical experiment. He said, no. So he lost both of his jobs. He was told, he was uh, kicked out of the military. So he put his uniform on and did a video. He put his first uniform because he was a member of the, the PPCLI when he first joined the military. And he put his original uniform on. And then that's what they court-martialed him for, that he was wearing the wrong uniform. And anyway, the whole thing's a joke. Holy, holy crap. How friggin' petty is that? Shit? It is petty. It's petty. But he embarrassed them. He drew attention to their I illegal order. They right? shouldn't have been embarrassed. Oh, I know. I know. So, uh, hey, it gets even worse. I, I mean, I will never wear a poppy again. I will never wear a poppy <clears throat> created by the Legion. Uh, and I'll explain that in a minute. But so he lost both jobs and the day. So uh, two years ago today was the last day of the police beating the crap out of all of us. Um, I wasn't beaten, but I mean, I'm speaking on behalf of the Canadians that were protesting mm -hmm. and the veterans, because a lot of veterans were beaten on that day by the, the police right there at the National War Memorial. We had cops beating the crap out of, you know, Afghanistan wounded veterans. Really? Oh yeah, it's pretty awful. I mean, you see a lot. You see a yeah. lot on social media. A lot of shit goes around. 
but to know what really went on my my little sister w- was was up there she mm-hmm. she went up and uh front line mm-hmm. signs and shouting and yada yada yeah um so she saw some of it but um you know just yeah you don't was... know what's true you don't know what's false it's it's it, it, this is a crazy mm-hmm. this was just a whole crazy event Come, sorry yeah um, continue so, so anyway um james decided that was enough so he launched uh, Canada Marches and he found another guy, uh, Christian George, who is a reservist who joined him on the entire trip from day one, all the way to Ottawa. Uh, and this guy was, was excellent. Like Christian is really a solid guy helping him. But as he was traveling across Canada, he was meeting a lot of Canadians who would come out to the side of the highway just to support him, give him money. A lot of times give him shelter. But then the legacy media got a hold of the story and there was <coughs> counter protesters accusations that James was a white supremacist. And that was what the story that the media ran with against James. So James had uh, occasions where uh, they were going to go to the Legion. They set up a contract or, or, you know, he would have an event at a fundraising event to keep walking across Canada at the Legion. Well, the National Command for the Legion shut it down and said, no, we don't want anything to do with that guy. He's a racist. And so they didn't let him go in there. But you can go into any Legion now and ask if you can book a a drag queen story hour to show off your sexual perversion in front of toddlers. As long as the parents okay it, right? They think that's great. I'm going to show you a grown man dressed as a woman who's going to twerk or tweak or whatever the hell it is in front of your toddler. It's almost the same. Because you want to be, you know, inclusive. And, and somehow teach your children on the morality that they should be following into the future. Sorry, that guy's a pedophile, okay? And he's up there putting on this sex act, sex act in front of children. Like he's getting some sort of sexual need fulfilled by doing that dance in front of toddlers. Sorry, but that's unacceptable. But the Legion will allow that. They will advertise and support that because they want to be all-inclusive and diverse. But a five-time deployed combat veteran for this country is a racist, and therefore you're not going to help him walk across this country and raise awareness for bodily autonomy, informed consent, and personal freedom. That's what we've done. So I will not wear a poppy on Remembrance Day. Um, I've made my own, uh, and I wear on my coat that I wear now, it's the Afghanistan Memorial uh, flower. But I'm not going to, because the, the Legion, the Royal Canadian Legion owns the, um, right. the rights to the poppy in Canada. So I'm not going to support them. I'm not going to give them money and I'm not going to give them advertising. I'll make my own poppy, which I did uh, last year, not the, the Remembrance Day that just passed. The previous year, I made some out of red paper and drew a poppy on it. That's what I'll do, but I'm not giving them mm. my time or money. Do you find, <clears throat> do you find that behind closed doors... Uh, people will tell you that they support you, support not necessarily you, but the cause of that, as opposed to them being outside with their friends. Like, yeah, yeah, do you, yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, as time has gone on, we've been more open to talking about it. People need a community, yeah. and you feel alone in your thoughts. You tend to just stay silent or nod when other people talk. You know. That's a, it's a good question. That has not been my experience, uh, only because people know who I am. They know what I'm about. 
Um, I'm, I am all over social media for different things. Mm -hmm. And so when people meet me and my superpower is that I can go anywhere I want in anywhere in the world and nobody recognizes me. They'll know the name, but they won't put two and two together unless I'm standing at, you know, beside a truck or I'm at some, some event where a whole bunch of people who supported the convoy are. But if I'm at the mall, I've never once had anyone come up to me and say, Hey, oh, you look familiar. Guy. Like you're that guy hmm. that never, ever happens to me. It happens to Tamara and Chris Barber. Like they no get doubt. it everywhere they go. Me, not at all. Um, but Keith Wilson, who is, uh, the lawyer that I worked with. So I had Keith Wilson and Eva Chipuke were both the lawyers that I was in Ottawa with. And the three of us were, we did everything together. We, we went to all the meetings together. Like we did a lot of strategy together. Keith is a lawyer. Eva's a lawyer. They're bound by their licensing, you know, the, um, the law society of Alberta. <clears throat> and so that's the circles that they operate in is the legal circles, people that rub elbows with the government, you know, government officials, that's their circles that they're in. Keith has told me that many people in industry, contact him behind the scenes and they're like, thank God you were there, but they can't come out and publicly support Keith. Right. Right. So for me, that doesn't happen, but there are people, let's say in the white collar spheres that it definitely does happen. They won't come out publicly thank God. And, and say, Jeez. you know, this, this guy is our guy. And I know Keith has, uh, Keith has paid a price for his participation in the Conway mm -hmm. Same with Eva. They've paid a big price. So it just that it's been my my um, experience that <clears throat> for for a couple of years there were so many people against like they they would bend over backwards to get another booster, hmm. um, but yeah, but um, and make you wear your mask and hmm. do all these things, but then when you're standing outside having a cup of coffee outside the studio just having a chat. They're so against it. It's crazy. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. You know, um, I just wanted to, I wanted to say this list of the things in the past four years that have shown through. Wokeism, pandemic, mm. mass migration, uh, medical assisted in dying, mm. uh, unknown cause, uh, uh, causes of death. Uh, in some, some schools and establishments, there's the removal of national anthems. There's a lot about sex and race now. It's been so pre uh, prevalent, it's fucking insane. Mm -hmm. Gender ideology, even in some cases recently, there's been aliens. What the fuck? Um, um, and all of this has to do with, you think, perhaps maybe depopulation, or does are, are all these things different? It, it's been a weird four years. Yeah. But it says to me a lot, too, about... The people and how, I mean, the government's hitting everybody. Yeah. Why would anyone believe anything anymore when everybody has something to do with something to do mm -hmm. with this? Yeah. This wokeism and whatever the hell's going on. At some point, it hits them. Mm -hmm. So I, I often talk about uh, these three circles. Okay. I always, it's the circle of control, what you directly control, your circle of influence what you can directly influence that your effort can influence that. And then the last one is your circle of concern. Circle of concern. You can't do anything about that. 
Like I can't have an impact on aliens. Okay. I can't have an impact on many, many things out there. Kasarian Jewish people, uh, aliens uh, that, uh, live in Antarctica, lizard people. I can't, I have no control (laughs) over that. But when we talk about the circle of control and the circle of influence, when it comes to influence, you should be trying to convert influence into what you can control. And that's what you focus on, what you can control and what you can influence. Circle of concern, keep an eye on it. You know, there's other people out there that will spend all of their time and energy in that third circle and they can't control or influence it, but that's where they put all their energy is in. And I always tell people, get out of that, that circle, focus on the other two. But you got to still kind of monitor it. I mean, even it's so absurd. You've got to monitor it even for entertainment value. Like, <laughs> like where are they, what's next? Like you've got to have a Yeah. Like why did the aliens pick Antarctica? It's and, so freaking cold. Well, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> cold blooded. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but you know, the, there is a deliberate disruption to Western civilization. Okay. Do you see, you know, Muslim countries right now, third world Muslim countries having to deal with wokeism inequality? No, because their (laughs) lives are not unified. They're not organized. If they were organized, they wouldn't be a third world country. So they're not really part of the equation all that much. It's, it's Western civilization that in order for this depopulation, this it, it must be destabilized as well. You've probably seen the Yuri Bezmenov uh, video where he's talking. He filmed it in the mid '80s. He was the Russian defector guy, big round glasses, like a sandy brown blonde hair. He was a former uh, KGB guy, and uh, he was he was on a show and he was explaining how the Russians go and completely subvert an entire uh, country. And the first, the first phase of this, there's four phases, but the first phase, um, takes, I think 20 years to accomplish and it's the demoralization. And I don't mean demoralized, like, oh, how you feel today? I'm a little demoralized. You know, I'm not talking about your personal sadness. I'm saying you are a moral person who needs to have your morals removed. It's demoralization. Wow. Right. So this is the first piece. And what do you do? You attack the values of a society to the point where now you're instilling this woke ideology within your youth. And and all of this stuff does happen at the local level because students in public school are a captive audience and they're separated from the parents. You don't see the attend as much attention given to the to the universities per se uh okay let me back that up a little bit you do the the colleges and universities the post-secondary it's extremely woke um but it's a different kind of a, a dynamic there because once you're 18 you're an adult and if you're in post-secondary your parents aren't part of that equation at all you can disrupt the minds of them but what we're seeing is School boards literally encouraging staff to lie, to, to teach their kids to lie to the parents. Now, who's, who did that? What's the first group of people we saw do that in, in our history and our lifetime? The Nazis. The Nazis 
deliberately wanted to break the bonds between the children and the parents. You know, during um, the 30s, up until the 30s, when, you know, Hitler became the chancellor in 33, what they always did is, you know, kids went to, to church and um, on weekends. Okay, they had school on Saturdays and they also had church, which was a lot of Bible study, stuff that's not fun. When the Germans came in, they said, get rid of that crap. The kids are going to have fun. They're, it's mandatory you come to school, but you're doing sports and fun activities all day. And you're going to get a little side taste of indoctrination because they want to break the bonds of the children to the parents. This is why if you look at the policies, and I, I already verified this with my son's principal in the Niagara region. I got a, a draft copy sent of their policies around all this woke ideology crap. And I read in the, in the paragraph where they were talking about not disclosing or encouraging children to not discuss things with the parents. So I got a hold of my son's principal and I said, what is this? Is this true? She goes, well, that's only a draft. I said, yeah, I can tell always... you right now, if you make this into an official policy, me and a lot of people will be showing up on your door. Like this is, this is an abomination. You have no right to do this. And I got to be careful with, you know, the school because I get a lot of support from that school for my son. So you got to be careful on how you choose your words. And I, and I keep it very diplomatic, but I literally looked at the policy and it talked about encouraging lying to parents. And it talked and, and encouraged staff to not disclose certain information that they know about with their children. I just looked at um, a policy that came out in the Kingston area, it came from the union uh, and the human rights, there was legislation and it basically warned teachers in the Kingston area that if you use certain terminology, certain phrases, um, you do certain things they view that as a human rights uh, violation and you will be sanctioned by management, by the board, and it's with support of the union. And this is coming out of the, the NDP. Uh, Holy fuck. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is when, <clears throat> when they're in post-secondary, the parents aren't in overwatch. But when they're in elementary school, when they're trying to get the ideology into these kids' impressionable minds at a young age... They got to figure out how do we inject ourselves between the kids and the parents. Like it's really quite disturbing the stuff that's going on. And the, t the a lot of the teachers don't like it, but they want to keep their jobs. Right. Makes sense. Right? So where does it, where does it come from? It's trickling down from something. A lot of it, this, the, is it Soji? It's coming <clears throat> into the United Nations. Um, they've got their, so it's funny, you know, the, the UN, um, there are, six different sort of areas within the United Nations. And historically, we've always thought about the UN was uh, peacekeeping a military force. That's my understanding. Right. But they have a bunch of other, um, let's say, pillars and how they operate. There's, a, I think, six total. And peacekeeping is only one small thing of what they do. But they all, they have the United Nations Assembly um, they have the United Nations uh, Security Council. They have all different things. And economic development is a big part of what the UN does. The UN is also heavily involved in the WHO. And so, you know, these things have all these Our heroes and ten these tentacles, right? Yeah. And so when you're looking at what the UN is involved in, 
And, you know, people think that, oh, the UN, it's a big, giant bureaucratic machine. It can't do anything without its member countries participating in sort of the direction that they want to go. I hear these stories all the time about UN troops. Okay, there's no such thing as UN troops. Like that, UN troops don't exist. The United Nations does not have its own military. It does not have its own police force. What happens is, in the case of, let's say, uh, Cyprus. Canada was in Cyprus for 30 years. Canada is a member of the United Nations and there's a peacekeeping mission every six months, or it used to be, we haven't been there in over a decade, it used to be a, you know, six month rotation to Cyprus. Okay. What they would do, cause they don't have like this big giant base, UN base of their own soldiers. What they do is they say, Hey, Canada, um, can you provide a battalion to go to Cyprus? Hey, America, can you provide a battalion? So it's a task force meant to take all the member countries, contribute uh, soldiers. And then they all just wear a UN beret, but they belong to Canada. And so the same thing happens with policing. You can deploy mm. on a mission overseas with the United Nations as a police officer. Um, they have a group that does that as well. So they don't have this big standing army of their own. They take it from every other country that's a member. And sneaky it is it's it's efficient too in the sense okay um but we we always hear you know people get really excited when they see an airplane up in north bay that has the un marking on there it's like well planes have to land and refuel don't get excited about that it's only a little tiny plane it might be transporting police officers it might be but you don't know what it's it's really doing so don't really that's in your circle of concern that's not your circle right. of control Okay, so leave it alone. Don't get excited about it. It's a nothing burger. But when you get on social media, people get all excited about and worked up. I don't know how many times. So at the convoy, there was these police in brown outfits, right? And everybody said they were UN police. And I don't know how many yes, times. Yes, I saw this, yes. I don't know how many times <laughs> I have to go and say to people, they were not UN police. I physically walked up. And I looked at the badge on the guy's arm because I believed that they were Certe de Quebec. So Quebec and Ontario have provincial police. Mm -hmm. Certe de Quebec is provincial police for the province of Quebec. That is the uniform that they wear. I walked up, I saw the badge with the fleur-de-lis on it, and I already knew who they were prior to. And I walked over to Alexa Lavoie from uh, Rebel News because she's from Quebec. And I said, those are Certe de Quebec, right? She goes, yeah, they are, and they're terrible. I said, yeah, I know. And then they shot her in the leg with a projectile. Wow. Um, so people got all spooled up and excited. Oh, the UN had police there unmarked. It's like, no, those are Canadian cops in Canadian uniforms in Ottawa. Because when they declared the Emer Emergencies Act, they took police from all different jurisdictions as far away as BC in Newfoundland to come to Ottawa and help out the, the cops that were in there making the mass arrests there wasn't enough cops to go around so the un you know they have so many tentacles into so many different organizations and they're active in so many different things especially the who okay and that's under the un the world health assembly is another part of the un these are the ones that are trying to take control of pandemic responses so to tell you that if, if canada agrees to this pandemic treaty it basically means Canada, you're no longer in charge of your own pandemic response. The WHO will be. 
under the, the WHA, the World Health Assembly. So it's hard to say who's driving this whole thing. But on the surface, like you said earlier, they're hiding in plain sight under these official organizations that are really household names for people. They understand that. They just don't know who the guy is standing behind the curtain. They all just look at the Wizard of Oz. It's fascinating. Yeah. And then, you know, this goes on through different, um, you know, it happens in all Western civilization. Um, if you look at all of the countries in the world, <clears throat> I think that are without central banks or let's say part of the W, no, not the W, um, IMF, International Monetary oh, yeah. Fund. If you look at all the countries that belong to them, there's three that don't. Russia, Iran, and for a time, Venezuela. Okay. Remember the old axis of evil from 9-11? Yeah. yeah. The three countries that made up the axis of evil were not part of the IMF. Well, how did they get their name on that list? Well, because they don't want to hand over their money or their sovereignty. They're, you know, nationalists. They're not globalists. And they're protecting their people and their people's interests. So let's target the people that are not in the club with us and make them the bad guy, make them the villain. That's how it's all done, right? And I hate to say it, but people have pretty soft heads. 100%. Yeah. Speaking of soft heads, a lot of cops were up in that <laughs> oh, yeah. convoy. Now, yeah. did you ever see a cop, like, lay down his gun, you know, so to speak? I had heard uh, stories from people that were at the front line. Like, I was there when the two people got run over by the horse. Like yeah. I was standing right there. Like it was an older this, lady. Yeah, Candace. Uh, um, I, her last name starts with an S. Uh, and the other guy, the other guy just came forward. He's actually part of the lawsuit with uh, the other lawsuit, the other legal team. Um, there was a lot of rumors that he was killed that day by the horse, and that you know. But mm. and, and everyone's been looking for him. I don't even know his name. I just know that he came forward. He's part of the other team's uh, lawsuit against the government. Um, but I had heard rumors that there was, uh, I never heard a story of a cop saying, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this and turn around left. I did hear two things though. A lot of Ottawa police said, I am not going downtown. And if you try to send me downtown, I'm taking a sick day hmm. or I'm going on vacation until this shit's over. I'm not doing that to these people. So that was one story I heard a couple of times. Another story I heard that when the public was right there appealing to, you know, the police that were on that line, uh, if that cop spoke back to the protesters, the sergeant would come over and pull them off the line and put someone in that gap. Spoke back in what regard? Like engaged in dialogue with the protesters. Regardless of what the conversation Yes. Yeah, yeah. Any discussion. Okay. It was like, no, you keep a straight face. You don't talk to these people. And if you do, you're getting pulled off the line. So, because people were there, like there's a, a, a video I saw of a woman trying to hand the cops a flower and the guy whacked it right out of his, her arm, right across the forearm with a big stick, you know? So you had some of them were willing and ready and able to start busting skulls. Uh, and some of them I know didn't want to. Some of them were, I bet were, Pretty excited about it. To be yeah. Honest. Yeah, absolutely. They were, you know, I know guys that just kind of like that. Yeah. Just in general. I talked to a lot of retired police. Um, the first group that I belonged to organized group was a group called police on guard. 
So you remember when in Calgary, the two female officers tried to arrest that guy for playing hockey? Um, it was in December, uh, right after the convoy started. The lockdowns were there. It's a group of guys out on a pond. street hockey. There was a few. There was a few of those stories yeah, throughout. Yeah. Okay. They're out on the ice, out in a public park, playing hockey on on skates. And uh, there was too many players on the ice, so of course the cops got called. Two female officers tried to arrest this twenty-year-old guy, and he was like, "What the hell are you touching me for? Like, why are you doing?" This? And they're pulled out the taser tried to take him down he resisted uh they finally got him though and um the next day one of the founding members of an organization called police on guard who was um he lives in uh, godrich area um chris Vandenboss, he went public with police on guard and it was all police that were disgusted by the behavior of police in canada and they came together, you know, there were RCMP, OPP, uh, city cops, um, everything, this large group of police. Uh, and then the other one was a Toronto cop, Matt Blacklaws, who they came together and started police on guard for the, and they started pushing back. They filed lawsuits against police departments and everything. These are the cops that we want, right? These are the yeah. ones that, and they were in, the, sure. they were in this from day one. And uh, I was actually at the convoy with a bunch of their leadership. Um, it's the first time I ever actually met Chris Vandenboss in person. And um, I was sh- like, this guy's huge. Like he's, uh, he's got to be in the 280 oh, wow. solid, big, giant cop. But he believes in his community. He believes in policing by consent. You know, he derives his authority by the public that he's trying to help. <clears throat> so when he's seen these two idiot um, police officers trying to arrest a Canadian for playing hockey outside. That was just a bridge too far for him. So he's like, no, I'm, I can't do this. And the next day they launched their, um, on Facebook, they went public on Facebook, uh, with police on guard. And then a bunch of people joined in three months later, they, they allowed emergency response, uh, people, uh, medic, uh, fire, whatever, and, uh, military to join. So that's when I joined. Um, I had heard about them, but I wasn't a police officer, so I couldn't join at the time. And I sent it to a friend who was a cop. He joined. Uh, and then he told me three months later that they're opening up to non police. Um, and like Chris did a video, it it, is a pretty big viral video of Chris when he was in his car with his family driving in his minivan, driving to Ottawa in the convoy. He was very emotional, was crying, talking about, you know, showing video of all the people lining the, uh, the overpass, uh, and all the support that he was getting. So I talked to Chris the morning I got the call to go to the convoy. And I said, yeah, I'll, uh, like him and I spoke and then I got the call to go to the convoy. And then I was on the way and Chris called me. And so you know, there was a lot of police that were there that were on our side from day one. But I've been told by a lot of police that the people getting hired now into, into policing, they're all compliant people. They're not people that are going to push back against authority. That's a major thing, a major attribute that these people have is that they're very obedient to authority. And that's actually counter it's actually dangerous for police officers to be obedient to authority because every time a police officer responds to a call, they have complete autonomy and authority over that situation. So if you're a new police officer, brand new out of OPC in in Elmer, 
you see a car accident on the side of the road, you're the first responder. That's your scene. You know, your sergeant shows up, he doesn't take over. That's yours. He tells you, you deal with it. It's yours. That's not like the military where, you know, the private sees it, the corporal shows up, corporal takes over, then the sergeant takes over, then the officer takes over. It's not like that. It's, you're the on-scene commander, you own the situation. So police have an enormous amount of autonomy. But what they're doing is they're hiring people that don't care much about autonomy. They care more about, you know, being obedient to authority. And that's why you're seeing all these cops, the young ones, ready to get in there and bust some skulls, right? It's not a good state for our policing. Oh, my God. I'm speechless. It's disgusting. Yeah. What was the call to the convoy that you just mentioned? So the convoy got there um, two days before I got that call. And I w- a friend of mine who knew I was retired military thought, you know, they're, they're having struggles, like trying to get a little bit organized there. Like they were great getting to the convoy, but you have to, to give my dog. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, they were awesome getting to Ottawa and then they got there and they were like, okay, this is, this is getting bigger than we thought. Um, we're getting a lot of support. We got to get a little more better organized. And they were for the most part, I think they did a great job of that. Um, but one of the original organizers, he called me, says, look, I, we're, we're kind of struggling here and we understand that, you know, for you, an army guy, this would be something that you could come here and organize a little bit better. So I said, okay, you could probably go there and I could go there and do a sustainment plan. So I'm telling him what to do, but he's like, can you just drive here? Cause I was only two hours away. I was living in Kingston at the time. I'm like, all right, fine. I'll just go there. And I, I packed a bag for five days. Wow. Uh, expecting that I would just go there, build the sustainment plan and then go home, just hand it off to somebody else. But as I got there, um, the original things that I thought that I would be dealing with started to resolve themselves. But I thought, you know, we really need to start pushing the ball down the field. We can't just sit here on the 10 yard line the whole time. So we we're going to have to make some changes and figure out a strategy. So I started to get involved in that. And then the lawyer showed up. So where I expected that I was going to be there for no more than five days, I ended up staying for 22. Um, I never had any intention of doing any public statements, um, spokesperson stuff, media, nothing. That was not my interest or my intention. Um, but the situation evolved to the point where I kind of had to, um, and a lot of people responded to my involvement as opposed to the things that they had seen. Like, so mm. guys like Pat King, Pat King's a very controversial guy. Um, yeah. and, and so it was kind of like they were viewed, the convoy was viewed by a certain, through a certain lens because of the way the mainstream media was lying about them. And then you had spokespeople like Pat King, uh, and other people that kind of turned the public off. And then when I did the public statements, that just brought a different a dynamic altogether. And the reason I spoke publicly was because I wanted to communicate certain messaging to the uh, city of Ottawa political apparatus, and especially to the chief of police for Ottawa. So like I wrote all my statements, that was, you know, all mine. And, you know, I had discussions with the lawyers about why I was doing this and they were in agreement. But 
you know, when I did my master's degree in business, I focused on negotiations. And so I understand that language very well. And even though it seems like I'm making a public statement, what I'm actually doing is communicating a certain amount of intention to a, a specific audience, which was the chief of police, the council, and then any other government official who's watching this. But from, you know, the public's perception, they're looking at it and going, okay, that's a morale boost thing, but it's not, you're mm -hmm. trying to communicate your intent. And you see this when unions get involved in a big, long, um, strike, uh, or negotiation with the government, both sides will do it. You'll see them have a big negotiation session and then they'll go out and talk to the media. They're not informing the public or informing members. What they're doing is they're using media as a tactic against their opponent and they're communicating certain things and putting pressure on their opponent through the media. And I was doing the exact same thing. So, because they wouldn't talk to us. The government refused to talk to us. And I couldn't get a meeting with the chief of police or the mayor. We all tried, the, but the highest ranking person I spoke to the whole time was a sergeant. And he was terrible at it. The guy was terrible. Um, and I couldn't get through any higher ranking people to have a serious conversation with it. Uh, with them about what was going on. So I had to take the media approach and that's what I did. So, you know, it did eventually get me a meeting with the city manager who is the highest ranking non-elected official in the city of Ottawa. Uh, so I had my first meeting with him. Um, by the way, like all this stuff, it's in the book. Mm -hmm. um, We're going to get to the book. Yeah, it's all in the book and I talk <clears throat> about that kind of in detail. Um, but, you know, it was, it was just, I never had any intention of being one of the faces of the convoy. That was not my intention when I got there, but there was a little bit of a vacuum for, you know, something that I was uniquely, um, equipped to, to fill. And that's why I did some of it. And in truth, I think I only did five public statements the whole time I was there for the 22 days. I was only like five videos I was involved in. That's it. Not man, you many. made an effect. Yeah, yeah, you really did. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it? Now, uh, you go yeah, ahead. No, no. I was just, is there any looking back now? Like, I mean, um, uh, you're now in. You're you're here. You're not going anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's it. This is you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the big difference between. 2019 and 2020. Yeah. 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 And, and that was the thing, like when this thing first did it, I was the gray man. I wasn't trying to draw any attention to myself because again, I didn't know who my adversary was. I didn't know where the threats were coming from. I just knew they were out there. So I wasn't going to be easy pickings as a lone wolf who has no support. So I was, you know, gray man. Uh, after a couple of months, I was like, I'm not wearing that mask anymore. That's, that's stupid. Like it says on the box not, you know, not to be used to stop viral transmission. It says it on the box. So I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, I wanted to be the gray man because I didn't know who the threat was, but then through a series of circumstances, uh, I ended up going to Ottawa. Now, even when I went to Ottawa, I wasn't fully sure who the threat was, but the moment that the convoy started to head towards Ottawa, I was like, I'm keeping an eye on that thing. That is probably the biggest 
act of uh, civil disobedience that we're likely to see, and it's going to be the most effective. So when I got the call, again, I didn't think I was going to even be invited. But the moment he made that ask, there was no way I was going to refuse. And I wasn't going to offer it to because I didn't want to be invited somewhere that I, you know, you want to ask me, I'll go, but I'm not going to inject myself into your thing. You've sure. done this, you take credit, you, you know, that's yours, you own it. But he asked me to go and I, and I thought there's nowhere else that I could possibly be. This is how I protect my family. This is how I protect, you know, my community. And I push back against this government. And that was the best, the best choice that I could have made at the time. Uh, did it have a, a big cost? In a lot of aspects, it cost me everything, but I also gained everything. Um, you know, she's sitting there. I know you can't see her on the camera, but she's sitting there. And that's probably the biggest benefit that I've ever had of my involvement in, in any of the COVID experience that's is that beautiful. I get to be with her. Yeah, it's wonderful. But I also, you know, I've had other family uh, implications towards me that are more difficult. But over time, I'm going to get that back. Yeah, we all have. Yeah, yeah. I have people in my family yeah. right now that don't speak to me. Mm -hmm. Oh, during the convoy, like when when the um, I went public at the convoy and the bank accounts got frozen, my uncle and my grandfather were furious, and they were sending text messages to my cousin. Uh, they didn't have very nice things to say about me. <laughs> Um, because they were afraid they were going to get their bank accounts frozen. So I, as Just a by joke, association, yeah, by, because of the same last name. And I, as a joke, I said to a friend of mine, you know, next live stream, uh, I need to get the addresses of my my uncle and my grandfather so I can thank them for all their support uh, during you know this this difficult time at the convoy and give their addresses. But you know, it's a joke. I wouldn't have done that to them. Right. Um. I mean, it would have been funny. No, no, I, I dig the humor. Get it? I, I get it. So I, you go ahead. No, you go ahead because I was going to just ask Tom to show the book. Let's talk about this book for a second. Okay, well, let's do that. All right, that's fine. Yeah. So this is the book. Take it's, your fingers off, oh, off sorry, the title. Sorry. sorry. Yeah, called, there you go. Uh, the People's Emergency Act. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So a friend of mine, one of the other founding members of Veterans for Freedom, um, I I ran in the Ontario election last year, <clears throat> lost. But I announced that I was running at um, uh, in Toronto at the uh, where's the ice rink? Um, you know the the outdoor ice rink uh, downtown. Uh, oh, oh, like at the city hall there. City hall, yeah. The is it um, Nathan some, some Square? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. So I announced there. There was about a, a crowd of about a thousand. It was at Worldwide Rally Seven. And um, it's like in, Niagara Falls, meh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who cares? No, who cares? <laughs> just, just look for something with water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Sorry. so I um, before I I gave my speech announcing that I was going to run, a friend of mine, Sammy, he said to me because uh, he was at the Windsor Bridge, and he got arrested, charged the whole bit, and he said, you know, like the convoy itself and coots and and all of these protests that popped up all across the country, you know. Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act, but the convoy and everything else was the People's Emergency Act that they declared against the government. And I'm like, that's my book. Fucking title. A, man. That's my book title. Interesting. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, so you know, it's because of Sammy that he came up with the name of the book. I was actually going to call it um, uh, Wellington Media and Morale um, because Wellington is the street in front of the uh, uh, parliament. 
and that's the street that we were mostly concentrated on. And Wellington mm -hmm. was my number one priority for where I wanted all the trucks. Uh, media was another big part of the strategy that we were working. And then morale. Morale was a big part of the strategy that we were, were trying to build. Um, so that's why, and, it, and a lo lot of people looked at it and said, that title just sucks. <laughs> I'm like, all right, <laughs> sure. fine, fine. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, so, but I think I'm, I'm really happy with uh, yeah. the title of this book. Um, I bought the uh, audio version. It's great. You did, eh? I did, yeah. Okay. I'm about so, probably close to halfway through. Yeah, so Mark Novak actually narrated that. Um, he did an amazing job. Mm -hmm. He's a musician. Uh, the music in between chapters is original. Yeah, that's interesting that he does that. Yeah, because he, he knew I was a U2 fan. And so he was like doing some riffs that sounded like the, the band U2. And uh, he did a great job. You know, it took him three months to do that, that wow. audio book. Uh, I'm, I was very happy, very happy with uh, the result of that. You know, he's an entertainer mm -hmm. and he knew how to really bring it to life. And, mm -hmm. and Asha and I, we would sit there and listen to each chapter and, you know, we'd have different opinions on what we heard, but we'd listen again and like, okay, no, it's good. It's good. So I, I'm very happy with what Mark did on that. And where can people get it? Like, So yeah. this is on Amazon. So you can get, uh, you know, hardcover is mm -hmm. on Amazon. Uh, paperback, uh, the audiobook, and Kindle, um, and then veteransforfreedom.ca also sells the paperback. Okay. Um, they sell other merchandise and stuff like that on the website. So, and it's all it's all the same. Um, you know, like you'll get them whenever. It'll be a little sooner probably with Amazon, mm -hmm. depending. But if you're going to try to buy the paper or the hardcover. It, it takes a while. It takes a bit, They're yeah. printed in the United States and right. the paperback are printed uh, here in Canada. Right. We just ordered a batch of 250 paperback and we sent them to Saskatchewan because next month we'll be at a big fundraiser for Chris Barber and Tamara Leach On and everyone March, else. Yeah. March 9th. March 9th. March 9th will be in Swift Current, Saskatchewan uh, for the big fundraiser there. Mm -hmm. uh, on the poster is Eva Chipiuk, who is our yeah, lawyer. Sorry, She's our yeah. lawyer. Right. Because Tamara, you know, she got the George Jonas Freedom Award handed out by the JCCF Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Wow. And cool. um, because I was there. So she has bail conditions. She cannot have contact with me unless in the presence of her lawyer. So we go to the, the big fundraising Freedom Award dinner. She's the recipient. She gives a speech. She steps off the stage walks past me i just say hey great speech really well done she sits down at the table i'm hardly even talking to her but the head of the jccf the head lawyer is at our table behind her is her criminal lawyer i we got lawyers all over the room and i hardly talked to her because she was you know the the fan favorite there and she was everybody wanted a photo with her and talk to her people submitted the video of her stepping off the stage and talking to me for three and a half seconds. And then there was a photo that we were in and there was no lawyer in the photo. So people submitted that evidence to the crown attorney in Ottawa. <clears throat> and so she got arrested and put in uh, remand for 24 nights, 25 days for, they said it was a breach of uh, her bail conditions. So she went back into, Oh remand. my God, they actually flew to her home in Alberta, arrested her, 
uh, two Ottawa police escorted her back to uh, Ottawa and she was incarcerated for 25 days. Welcome to Canada, the free. Yeah. And it wasn't a bail breach. The justice of the peace did not let her out, kept her. And then they finally got a judge and he ordered her immediate release. They had her shackled. Okay. You got to remember Tamara and Chris are only charged with mischief. Mischief is a, is a, like, I don't have enough things to charge you with, so I'm going to tack on mischief too. It's a throwaway. It's your gimme, you know, that's like a teacher giving uh, a point to you because you wrote the right date and your name on your test paper. It's a throwaway. And so that's what they're being charged with. And then she got 25 days in jail for the first time she was charged with mischief at the convoy. And then they said she breached her bail conditions and they put her back in jail for 25 more days um, for breach of bail, for, for mischief. Okay, so this is, uh-huh. this is Trudeau's Canada. So anyway, the deal is she can't have contact with me unless in the presence of a lawyer. But the thing is, we're both being sued for $400 million. So we do have to have meetings involving the lawyer. So I have to have communication with her because the lawyers need to speak to us about our lawsuits. So anyway, Eva is going to be at this fundraiser. So will uh, James uh, Mason, who's a Toronto lawyer. He's going to be at the fundraiser as well. And they've notified the Crown Attorney in Ottawa that, look, we're doing this fundraiser. They're not going to talk. There's no condition that says you've got to be X number of feet away from each other. The deal is we don't communicate unless in the presence of our lawyer. So as long as I go to this thing, I don't have to even talk to her. I can't appear on stage with her, nothing like that. But anyway, it's it's a book signing tour or a book signing event for me mm-hmm. to raise money to help them <clears throat> with their legal fees. So Jesus. Well, I hope everybody that hears this buys your book. Well, the venue, I, I've been told it's sold out. They expect about 450 people. Uh, Chris Barber is hosting it. Um, and it's to help raise money for Chris Barber's legal defenses. And then if there's more, they give it to other people in this country that have been charged. You know, so... How do you see this all turning out? Do you like, I, I, that's the circle of concern. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I talk to Chris regularly. Uh, I talk to their lawyers regularly, obviously. Um, I keep a very close eye. I, uh, Ash and I twice have gone to Ottawa to sit in the courtroom to see how things are going. And my read on it is that they are going to be vindicated. They're not going to be charged, but they are facing 10 years in jail for mischief. For mischief. For mischief. Not terrorism. How do they justify any of that? That's a great question. How do you justify this? This is the longest running trial in Canadian history for the charge of mischief and counseling mischief. So Harold Jonker, Harold Jonker, who lives in the Niagara region, last April, excuse me, he was charged with the same charges as Tamara last April. So 15 months after the convoy, they finally got around to charging Harold for the same thing that they're charging Tamara. So, uh, Chris Barber has one additional charge that Tamara doesn't have. Um, but the charges for Tamara are the same as the ones for, for Harold. Um, I testified a couple weeks ago, uh, for a guy named Jay, uh, Vanderweer. He's in, in trial right now for his participation in the convoy. And, you know, I, I was the first, it it was a weird trial because the lawyer contacted me. He said, I need you to be a witness at, uh, Jay's, Jay's trial. And I said, well, I can't come to Ottawa. He says, we'll do it in zoom. 
So I do it in Zoom and he says, uh, the trial starts Monday morning. You'll probably, I'll get to you by Wednesday because it'll probably be two, two and a half days for the crown to make their case. And then, you know, you'll be my first witness up. <clears throat> so I talked to him on the Sunday, the next day the trial starts noon. He texts me and goes, you're on at three today. So they went through this whole exercise and the crown tried to make their case by noon, three hours. The judge isn't going to make a decision until the middle of March. So this guy's sitting there not knowing what he's going to do. The one question that they asked me was, did you see any acts of violence uh, yourself at the convoy? I said, yes, yes, I did. By the police. Right. When they showed up and started beating civilians, I said I was right there when the horse ran over those two people. So the only act of violence that I saw personally was from the police against unarmed citizens who Judge uh, McLean ruled had a right to be there. That's what I saw. So I don't know how they're going to convict anybody, honestly. Uh, I don't know how. So I, I think that they're going to be exonerated. And then I think every other case is likely, I'm hoping, to get dropped. Right. And if they don't drop it, it's not in the best interest of the public. It is a complete waste of resources um, from the government, and they're doing it to be just vindictive. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's all. They don't care about the resources. No. They're they just, just want to disrupt your life. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we, we walked in and somebody said to us, uh, to Chris and Tamara's trial, they said, you know, the process is the punishment. Because, you know, Chris Barber is looking at a few hundred thousand dollars to defend himself on top of the fundraising. So JCCF isn't covering 100% of his trial because they can't. They have other people to support. Uh, Democracy Fund, uh, Rebel News, they created the Democracy Fund. They are paying for Tamara. But Tamara goes out and she fundraises to help other people's causes as well. Uh, Veterans for Freedom just started something called the, the Accountability Project, so TAP, to raise money to help people with their legal defenses. Uh, Shaba Vizi, he's um, Eastern European, came to Canada. He was badly beaten and hospitalized by the police, but they're still charging him. Um, and he's now on his third lawyer because he was getting screwed around by his other lawyers. But he needs money. He's got to raise money all the time. So everybody in Canada that has been charged with a criminal offense related to the convoy still has to defend themselves. Now, what we saw three weeks ago, I think today, Justice Mosley ruled that the Emergencies Act was illegal, that they operated outside of the, the law and what they did was wrong and they violated people's Section 8 charter uh, rights. But you don't see any of these Crown prosecutors dropping the charges now, do you? You don't. You would should think, be. You would think that would have to be automatic. Yeah, you would think. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, about that, the unconstitutional mm -hmm. thing. Has it taken effect is it going to is it going to work is well it doing anything yeah because as a result of it myself and several other people have all filed lawsuits against the federal government now for and, and, right. and, and with uh with like a bridge that says you're more than welcome to be doing this it's not there's nobody else that can make an excuse to to tell you you're wrong now yeah this is yeah. this so, is like your yes but that's from this side yeah nothing's happening from their side not yet. We've filed uh, individual lawsuits. So I'm not in a class action lawsuit. I'm in an individual lawsuit. I'm I'm suing the Attorney General of Canada and the King of England, right? Which are just representatives of, of the course. federal government. 
Um, Some Judge Judy shit right there. That's pretty nothing. much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so I, you know, myself as an individual, I am suing the government because they, there's been a ruling in a court that says, yes, you in fact did violate uh, people's charter rights and you did not have the legal authority to do what you did. And so the government on that Justice Mosley's ruling, they've announced they're going to appeal it. Right. Okay. Okay. But a lot of legal, uh, a lot of lawyers have looked at that, the ruling. They, it's a 190 page uh, ruling and they've gone through it and they said it's pretty airtight. Is that public? It is public. Where yeah. can somebody see that? Uh, that's a great question. I think somebody's, well, yeah, Andrew Lawton sent it to me. Um, it's funny because we were, I was laying on, in bed one day. I wasn't feeling very good, headache, whatever, at noon. I'm half asleep on the couch, messy hair. I just happened to check my phone. Everybody was all excited. And I got an email from Andrew Lawton, his show. And he's like, can you come on and talk about this thing? And I'm like, I don't even know what anyone's talking about, but sure, I'll do it. You know, so I hop in the shower, shave, try to get in front of a camera, but I had 20 minutes to figure out what the hell was going on. And luckily uh, I did, um, <laughs> but it's on there. It's a 190 page decision and it was filed. So what happened was Eddie Cornell, Eddie Cornell is also one of the, the five uh, founding members of Veterans for Freedom. Right after the convoy, they had 30 days because of the legislation in the Emergencies Act itself, Section 62 outlines something called a judicial review. So with a judicial review, it's like you saying, I'm suing the government, but it's a strangely different mechanism. But it's right there in the Emergency Act legislation under six, Section 62 that defines how a judicial review will take place if the government invokes the Emergency Act, the citizens have a right to examine the actions of the government. So that's what Eddie did. He took advantage with lawyers and he filed a judicial review against the federal government, which was his right to do so, um, in the legislation of the Emergency Act itself. Section 63 is last year we had the Public Order Emergency Commission where we had Justice Rouleau for seven weeks. It was a big commission. Everybody was in Ottawa for seven weeks examining the actions of the, the government. So Justice Rouleau ruled in favor of the government, but it's a commission. It's not a court of law. It wasn't legally binding. It had no teeth. Uh, it was reported yesterday that the government is late on responding to his recommendations but there's no teeth there's no like no fine there's no power of reload to do anything now it's dead but the judicial review is something different this is what eddie cornell and vince gersis who's retired opp what they filed within 30 days of of the end of the convoy that ruling was mosley that just came out three weeks ago today. Right. And that's the one that was by a judge in a courtroom and is legally binding. It sets a precedent and it's got teeth. When that ruling came out, all the lawyers in Canada went lawsuit <laughs> because of that. Oh, no. Without a doubt. Yeah. And it's <clears throat> and what I've been told by some, some pretty experienced lawyers is it's really well written. They're going to appeal Mosley's decision. But the thing is with this appeal, it's not like you can introduce new evidence. It's, it's like in an appeal, you're looking at the judge to see if the judge made an error in law. 
And everyone is saying, no, he was pretty airtight in that decision. I mean, it took him almost two years to come to the decision. Mm -hmm. So he was pretty thorough in his ruling and it's going to be a very difficult thing to appeal. Now, if it gets appealed and the government uh, wins the appeal, the next step is it'll go to the Supreme Court of Canada. But now the government's got a new problem because the chief justice, the head of the, the um, Supreme Court of Canada, biased himself during the convoy because he spoke to the media and said a lot of disparaging remarks about the convoy. So he's now oh, he man. now will have to recuse himself from any case that makes its way to the Supreme Court as long as he's <clears throat> the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He he's going like every every lawyer is going to fight that and say you need to step down from this case. You cannot hear this case because you've already shown your bias towards the convoy. So you can't hear this particular case. So that's going to be a federal government problem if it makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. So I think Mosley's decision is going to be incredibly difficult for anybody to try to overturn that. Well, I would like to Let's read it. So. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, um, I mean, you know, uh, it, I, I just sit here thinking, well, how did, how did our government not get to him? You know, like why him? Why, why was he... The, I don't know. It seems like, wow, okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, it, 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 well, even even Mosley in his decision, he said, you know, two years ago, I would have been quick to also use the Emergencies Act. But now that I've actually had more time right. to look at the actual evidence, uh, you know, he's concluding that, no, they were wrong. They, they acted outside of their authority, at, outside of the law. And so they were wrong. They violated people's charter rights under section eight, which is illegal search and seizure. So really his decision was based around the bank accounts. So when they froze all our bank accounts, he said that's so far outside of the scope of what you should be doing or what you had the authority to do. You violated people's charter rights now. So section 24, one of the charter details what a citizen is permitted to do in a democratic civilized society. Your charter right was violated under one of these different sections. You go to section 24, one, and it outlines what your responsibility as a citizen is to legally, civilly take your government to court and hold them accountable for the breach of your charter right. So that's what I'm doing. I'm actually using the mechanism within the charter itself to hold the government accountable for breaching my charter rights by seizing my bank accounts. So this is how we're going to do this in a civilized society. Um, we hope. What's the time frame? Don't know. <clears throat> um, the, they had a two year, uh, what do you call it? Uh, statute of limitations. So when Mosley's decision came out, all the lawyers in Canada that wanted a piece of this, they acted really quickly. I picked, wow. I picked my lawyers that I was standing side by side with shoulder to shoulder at the convoy, which is Keith Wilson, Eva Chipuke. And then a year after at the public order emergency commission, we had a lawyer, Brendan Miller, who was representing the convoy. So the three of them have come together. We've brought the old band back together from the commission. And now they're, you know, the, the legal team that I'm using to sue the federal government. So, so the, the judge's ruling, mm -hmm was he he came within the two year yeah but not by much not by much not by much 
So the good thing is, you know, they had about a three week window of opportunity there, maybe two and a half weeks actually. But had he taken any longer? Then what we could have done is rolled the dice and say, let's take them to court. Let's sue them anyway. Right. Wow. Because so it, it was a bit of a gamble when this thing came, it really, it pushed everybody really hard to start thinking about if they wanted to sue or not. Um, and I chose to sue. That moment must have been seriously sweet for you. Yeah, actually, <laughs> it really was. It, it really was. Um, what well, what what was that like? What was the moment like? Like, well, I like I said, I was feeling like ten pounds of shit in a five pound bag that day, mm -hmm. and I was on the couch, and I'm you know huddled up to to Asha, and I'm just I'm just not feeling it, and then all of a sudden, I you know my phone blows up, I'm looking at it. And I'm starting to see what just happened. And I was pretty excited. Because that was a good day for a lot of people. It was. It you know, was. it was a good day for me. Yeah. I, I, I literally danced at the coffee shop that day. Yeah. I, um, whatever I, I was imagine. feeling in the morning kind of went away um, within, you know, 20 minutes of that. It was, it's a really good thing. I mean, it's vindication, right? Mm -hmm. um, to not just not just what happened at the convoy, but almost a vindication for the last four years that your government has been doing a lot of horrendous stuff that, that your ancestors would never even have dreamt was possible for the, the government of the day to do. And so for everything that the government did over the last four years, it was almost like that vindication came down to that one decision. And so now with that, not only are we vindicated for what we did at the convoy, but now we actually get to take steps, further steps to keep applying the pressure and, and hopefully put a nail in the coffin of the Liberal Party of Canada as being the ruling government. That would be nice. Um, we, we were hoping that the Conservative Party would take this and say, well, add it to the basket of scandals. Um, you know, you've got a Rivecan, Aga Khan, We Charity. I, like I'm even forgetting. I did a whole video on it. It was my number one video on my YouTube channel was the scandals of Trudeau. But since I did that video, I, I think we've added three more scandals to it. Um, Bev Oda, who was a conservative MP, bought a $16 glass of orange juice and it cost her her seat. You know, a conservative under Harper. You got Justin Trudeau who's lining up bodies, literally. Um, and he's still there. He's like, he's the political equivalent to a cockroach and an atomic bomb. And yet he's still in power because a Jugmeet Singh doesn't want to let his sugar daddy go. That's where we're at. But you I know can, what? I'm the public, Yeah, the public is going to make this guy pay. Um, you think so? Yeah, we're not going to make it. We're not going to dip into his bank account. We're not going to, I mean, he's got so much protection because everything he did, he did in his capacity as an elected official. So are we going to dig into his own personal bank account? No, but are, are the people going to finally put an end to his government? Yes. Um, and I think the conservatives should look at the liberals as a warning. I think that if the public perceives that the conservative party when they form the next government in this country if they conduct themselves by the as the liberals have i think the public is going to just say that's enough we we've had enough of this shit and there'll be a lot of talk about either breaking up the country or just disbanding the federal government altogether 
Because if you think about it, what can a what can a federal government do when they boil it down to the lowest common denominator? There's only three things that the federal government can do: they pass laws, they form a budget, and they declare war on a foreign country. Provincial governments don't declare war. They don't have the authority. They don't have a military. They just pass budgets, pass laws, and everything else is just a pain in the ass. So what's the point of having a federal government anymore? I don't see the point, truthfully. I, I, I think they're a waste of oxygen, a waste of salary. 338 people making 200 grand a year. You know what? I recently, and that's of what we know. So yeah. I, I, left, I left the military <clears throat> medically. I had a parachute accident a couple of weeks before 9-11. Oh my God. And, um, you know, I had a, like a brutal, no, sorry. It was a few months before 9-11. Um, that injury, you know, I dislocated an ankle, tore the labrum in my hip. I had to get surgery on my hip. So I left the military eventually medically. Um, I had surgery in 2014 on my hip and, you know, I have lots of back problems, uh, lots of hip pain, chronic pain, everything recently. And I did get an award. I, I got, uh, uh, compensation, financial compensation. But as time went on, you know, it's starting to get difficult. You know, I pulled my back sitting down a few months ago and for a month was in agony, just sitting down. So, you know, if your injuries are not getting better or, you know, they're progressively getting worse, you apply through additional pain and suffering. I got, um, I just got an award for $67.77 for my additional pain and suffering. Well, good for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, to be to be fair, too, I did get the original payout. Yeah. Um, but that's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But, you know, I, I got the original payout. And what did I do? I bought RSPs, right? Bought RSPs. <clears throat> so last year, because I haven't been able to find a, a job in my field that lets me sit at a desk because I can't stand for very long. Uh, last, uh, two years ago, I had to cash one of my RSPs cause I got fired from my teaching job and I didn't know how I was going to make my bills for the year. So I cashed one of my RSPs from the money I got from my injury. I blew through that, but it made my exposure on my income tax look ridiculously high. So now I had back taxes. So the tax season that passed last year, I had an RSP. I had to cash the RSP so that I could pay the taxes from the year before. It wasn't enough. I still owe more taxes. But now because I cashed an RSP last year, it looks like I made a whole bunch of money this year. So now I'm going to get hit with taxes for paying off my taxes. Like this is the structure that we have. And then when I'm on, I'm, you know, their CRA was coming after me like crazy. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you tell your boss who screwed up my life? Um, Ask them where I'm supposed to get blood from a stone because I don't have the money to pay for it. I got fired from my job because of your policies and your government. Um, I don't know where I'm going to get the money to pay you back the taxes, but I'm certainly not crazy about giving you all my tax money back so you can send it over to Ukraine. You know, like there's real problems in this country and yet you want me to pay all of my money that I have to back taxes so you can go and give some other foreign country who was a former enemy of ours during the cold war all of our money like that's the that's what you want me to do and i said by the way it's kind of hard to give you guys money back when you're freezing our bank accounts mm -hmm. you know and stopping us from making a living in this country 
This I felt bad for the CRA lady, but she caught me at a particularly grumpy moment. You know what? Don't go working at the CRA. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't tell you to work there. But, you know, I, I know I'm going to probably get hit on more income taxes uh, just because I cashed the RSP last mm. year. And they probably won't hold back enough. But I applied for additional pain and suffering. Um, I do. There, there's like three or four different pots of money. And so I did get uh, a, a nice little chunk back, a little more per month than I was expecting, which which was good. It's really helpful. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. But I applied for the actual real significant additional pain and suffering, and I was expecting that I would get some kind of compensation. And, now, is that through the military? Uh, Veterans Affairs. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and then when it came back, it said, yeah, you're getting $67.77. I thought, how did you calculate that? How did you determine that my injury was worth $67.77? Like, where did the 77 cents come from? Like, did you have to do calculus? Um, like, what did you do to determine that number? I mean, I'll take the money. Yeah. I'll take the money, obviously. Because you could have lunch. Well, yeah, we got a, we got a membership <laughs> at a at a vineyard in Niagara on the lake. It's like okay, that's wine money for the month. Okay, you know, I mean, it's a discount. It's a, it's on sale. You got to take it, right? But, um, I it's it's even the lawsuit for me. I mean, I had some real difficulty. Ash and I we spent a lot of time and with Keith talking about the fact that you're going to sue the government, but the taxpayers are the ones that are going to have to pay the bill. It's not coming out of Justin Trudeau's bank account. Right. But part of Section 21, one of the important facets of that piece of the charter says that your action is to lead to a deterrent, to create a deterrent for your government to ever do this to the public again. And so that's the kind of piece that I'm holding on to is that uh, not only is it fair and just that you take this step towards the government, but it must be a deterrent in some way for your government ever to do that again. Mm -hmm. But the way I can rationalize it the best is I'm just taking liberal voters tax dollars. I'm not taking the rest of yours. <laughs> and so that's where I'm going to take the money. That's but great. at the end of the day, uh, this has never been done before. Nobody's ever sued under the emergencies act. Right. So determining what compensation is uh, for that is very difficult to do. And it's going to be up to the courts to decide if we get anything at all. Right. Uh, it's not up to me. I can make an ask, but sure. there's nobody who's going to tell me, yeah, that's what you're going to get. It'll be a judge who decides what is fair compensation based on the circumstance. So fascinating. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't learn a whole lot about Tom Marazzo growing up. <laughs> Sorry. I'm teasing. <laughs> We'll I do used a part. To fight a lot. We'll do a part two. I sucked at school and I used to get into <laughs> fights all the time. Yeah. Um, I did judo. I started judo when I was seven. I've done taekwondo. I've done uh, some mixed martial arts, grappling, karate, a uh, bit of jujitsu too. Yeah. And uh, but of of all the stuff I ever did, Krav Maga. Yeah. That's that's my number one. Krav Maga was the thing that I was looking for my whole entire life. It's it's a real combative. It's meant for the streets. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're not going to get into a street fight and start doing some kata right. or something like that. I love it. Uh, I, I, I was reading through your resume, brother, and as soon as I saw you were a black belt and grabbed my guy, yeah. I said, I, am, I love this guy. 
Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> and I and I love it. I haven't been able to train in quite a while. Yeah, uh, I had a club for a short time before the the pandemic, uh, and I shut it down. Not be like the pandemic hadn't been here yet, but I shut it down for good reasons. Uh, Krav Maga for some reason attracts uh, people that have a lot of former trauma in their life. And so they come to you. They don't ever want to be victimized again. Oh, I see. Yeah, sure. But unfortunately, it brings in the the victimization that they suffered uh, at the hands of somebody else. It brings it kind of into the club. Oh, yeah. oh okay. And so it's, uh, I had a whole bunch of procedures in place in case, because it's a lot of reality-based training. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of stuff you can get into in that training. You get triggered. Uh, so I had to have like procedures and everything set in place in case somebody did get triggered by the training that we were doing. Like we would do uh, five on one uh, fights as part of the final tests. I mean, there, there's a lot to it. Um, but right on. I'm, sorry, I'm just smiling because I yeah, that's that, crazy. That is so much fun. It is fun. It is fun. <laughs> uh, you know, I've been in a fight before where it's like two guys at the same at the same time. Yeah. And, and I I actually prefer that, believe it or not, to a one on one. I've always said it's easier to fight two or more. It is. It is. Because um, they're not a, they're not an like you're a single general. Yeah. And they're not. Mm-hmm. It's better. It's better. Um, I, but I, I haven't been in a fight since. Yeah, I'll wait till the end of the podcast. 15 years. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been in a fight in about 15 years. And I'm happy with that. I, yeah, of I, course. I don't want it. Yeah. Uh, there's a few people I'd love to smack every once in a while. <laughs> especially on the 401. That's hilarious. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. There's, I like guitar. Yeah. Um, I like software. I like construction. I love timber framing. I like skills. Um, you know, I like shooting, although Asha kicked my butt very decisively last year in Poland. We went to an indoor shooting range and I got my ass handed to me. Oh, sweet. Uh, and in bowling, she kicked my ass in bowling, <laughs> but I won on pool. And uh, well, the one reason I love this uh, tabletop on top of my pool table is because mm-hmm. my wife kicks my ass at pool. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Like I'm, I'm not overly, I'm not an overly complicated person. Uh, I've talked to Nolan about this many times. Is that I? We're back. Let's talk Nolan. about Nolan. Nolan. Yeah, yeah. He keeps uh, creeping into this yeah, conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I. Everything else other than food. I mean, I'm not eating monkey brain. Yeah. or uh you know animal testicles of any kind certainly no like, bats no bats but i'm i don't like the idea of not trying something yes okay, andrew's so, like that yeah i i want to try it before i determine whether i like it or not mm-hmm. but i i think it's kind of a shame to not try something that you might fall in love with and really enjoy i agree um except I'm not going to try exotic foods. You know, I'm not eating bugs. I don't care what Klaus Schwab says. Not eating bugs. <laughs> Don't even get us on the Klaus Schwab talk. No, yeah. Well, this is part two coming up, brother. Yeah. Uh, is it actually, is there anything that like, um, you know, you you do so, so many interviews and podcasts and things, mm-hmm. and I, I'm sure you've talked a lot about all this stuff a gazillion times. Is there anything that you just wish someone would ask or something that you want to just say? Anything at all, um, because I, mean, I want to hear it. Well, if, if if you wanted to mention that, you know, Going Again podcast has been his most fun podcast to date, that's fine. That's fine, too. I, I will say this. I, I'll say this. Um, this is the very first podcast I've ever done in person. Oh. And, and I think this is way better. 
I, I think this is a winning winning formula. I think it's better for the guests. I think it's better for you guys. Agreed. I think it's way better for the audience to see in-person stuff than, you know, two people on Zoom or, or StreamYard. Mm -hmm. Like there's a staleness to that. Mm -hmm. And there's a lack of connection that I think the, the viewers, um, they perceive that there's this disconnect and that's because you're electronically distanced. But in here, I think it's way better. I oh, think this is I the agree. formula. This is the show. Thank you for coming. Yeah. You know? and, you, and you get uh, a party gift of a I mug. Do. I love that. Your name on it. Yes. <laughs> well, Veterans for Freedom came out with a, a, a mug too. And uh -huh. they put all the, everybody had cool names. And they're like, you get Tom. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Tom. Or as, you know backwards it'll be mott thank wow. you it was easy to fit on a mug so. yeah we did it on both sides because it works better on television we don't know yeah. who's coming's left or right-handed yeah really yeah, that's, that's true, true. Well, that's you, you true. could have put mott for the camera i don't know <laughs> so, no i um you know I, I i wrote the book that's the first time i've ever written a book before uh ash and i were, were co-authoring a fiction book together loosely based on what we're seeing out in the world oh interesting. Uh, we're putting this it, it's strange because we have these pretty good conversations about where we want the book to go it's a trilogy um do you know about this antonov aircraft i love that he starts off yeah. with three books yeah yeah it's a trilogy <laughs> yeah. yeah so do you know this antonov airplane i think so they, the canadian government confiscated from the russians it's yes sitting at pearson right now oh no yeah the book if we do it right now the working title is uh trojan wing it's about that plane. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so we're trying to take in everything that's really going on in the world, weave it into a story, because yeah. it's all connected. Yeah, uh, it is. It's all connected, believe it or not. And it's it's sickening and scary about how well it all meshes together. Yeah. Now, you uh, said depopulation earlier, yeah. and I'm still thinking, I'm going, yes, I agree with the depopulation, but it seems that that is just one uh, element Sensical. to yeah. what's next it's i mean money feels like the the deal yeah. but did you guys watch the joe uh the tucker carlson interview with putin yes yeah two times he mentioned the golden billion look up the golden billion because i heard it twice i heard it and uh i posted it on twitter and people are like yeah i heard that too and then there there is an actual uh i think wikipedia on what the golden billion is okay We've always been assuming that the depopulation was to get down to a half a billion, but somebody has to serve those half billion. So, you know, I thought it was really interesting that Vladimir Putin himself mentioned the golden billion because, you know, we're sitting, we're hovering at over just over 7 billion population worldwide. Uh, I always assumed that they were going to try to get down to a half a billion. Um, but it's going to, I mean, I think that's the goal. Uh, and there's something, I, I've heard many things, there's something about the land in Ukraine, uh, that territory, and it's where the, the golden billion or maybe the half billion are going to eventually end up. So Now there's like a million people out there as I'm saying, this conspiracy theorist, what the fuck, what the fuck, I love this shit. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, I just want, yeah, just keep talking. I no, I mean, I, it, this is so serious. I want to make a joke, but I... Oh my God! Yeah, well, yeah. Like, is it a traffic issue? <laughs> you must be. Well, I, I have to crazy. say it. Sorry, drives me if crazy. that's it, then uh, let's yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, I'm all for driver re-education in this country. 
Uh, and if you're, a, if you're a foreign driver coming into Canada, you have to take this, oh, big this driving time. education. I was course. at the grocery store this morning. I met one. Yeah. And for the love of God, get out of the left lane. That's for passing. It's not for you to have a nap. Okay. <laughs> what get about, out of the left lane. What about me going to work in Toronto? I'm con it's a continuous pass. That's okay. that if if you can get a wide open lane, but good <laughs> luck. You're always going to find somebody who's having a nap doing, you know, 80 or 90 in the far left lane. You're not passing. You're not passing. You're you're road raging. Oh, and I'm an I, I just want to say, as speaking of books, uh, my lovely wife Rhonda Lee uh, just came out with her first novel <clears throat> entitled Effie. It's a love story. Nice. It's nothing to do with uh, global no, but catastrophes. I, no. But yep. uh, we'll send a copy home. I did think guys. about it when he mentioned Amazon and get and getting the hardcover printed. Yeah. Everyone complained about the hardcover. Taking time to, to come. Them. Get the paperback because they're printed in the U.S. and takes for yeah takes for forever it. takes yeah. forever i mean we've tried to order our author's copies and they're difficult for even us to get mm -hmm. uh so going out like i didn't even bother sending hardcovers to saskatchewan for the fundraiser i knew they'd never get there right um so yeah it's not a hardcover i don't think i would have done again i know a lot of people wow. like that but yeah. i don't think it's uh, people on social media have said look i ordered this thing back in september and i still haven't got it yeah Rhonda's getting the same. Well, yeah. the thing about your book uh, is that it may be a collector's item someday to some to Canadians. I mean, for real, man. Uh, what you're what you've done and what you're involved in, uh, and and all this this literature, yeah, uh, speaks huge yeah. for this, Canada. It, this is history, yeah, in the, in the making right now. I, I a lot of people have mention that uh and i'm very grateful that i do get to contribute to the body of knowledge of canadian history uh, like I, I feel good about that um i just wish more canadians would read books again <laughs> well <laughs> that's a thing because not a lot of people read books in canada uh their attention yeah. spans too short right yeah. now so we did we were like okay uh, let's go to audiobook and and stuff and we were joking yesterday like do like Derek Smith. Derek Smith wrote uh, the cartoon book, um, The Prime Minister Who Stole Freedom. Right. And it came out during the actual <laughs> convoy. He sold massive amounts of this book, right? But it's funny. It's entertaining. It's a cartoon book. It's really, you know, it's good. Um, but when, for more serious things, I think people are, one, they're economically stressed. They don't want to spend uh, $24 on a book. Um, two. That's the truth. People are kind of, tired and overwhelmed um mm -hmm. and to sit down and read like, i've got about five books at home right now that are on my shelf waiting for me to read them right. and even i can't break down and read a book right now my mind is too yeah. full of of crap um but a lot of people who have read the book said like they've they've didn't put it down they've read it in a day or two um and that's when i know that it's it's a good book like i've i've been able to write it from my perspective. I am very proud of this book. Um, you know, I've, I'm not a writer. I'm not trained in writing. I went through high school and had to take English class, which I think I failed twice. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm proud of the book because I had very specific objectives when I started and, and I often describe it like if there was a, gro a GoPro on my head, that was the perspective of the book. I only wrote about what I saw, but then I went to the commission and I was, I realized it's just not going to tell the complete story. I had to, I had to write about what I participated in 
and also what I heard the police say and the government say during the commission. And there's a, some controversial things that happened at the convoy. Um, you know, I was the one who was pushing very hard to get the trucks onto Wellington. And I, the more trucks on Wellington, the better. I didn't care where they came from. I just wanted all the trucks I could squeeze right there on Justin Trudeau's doorstep. And that became a very controversial um, item months later because people felt like, oh, you you put them all lined up so that the police could kettle them and sweep through and arrest everybody. And, you know, I've, I've heard this argument many mm. times, and it's from amateurs who don't understand the difference between strategic, operational, and tactical level um, things that you're trying to do. Tactical level is boots on the ground. This is when the army or the police, this is the violence level. This is where the fighting actually happens at the tactical level. Strategic level, you're talking about influencing the entire government, the, the whole of Canada. That's not where violence happens at the strategic level. And for all the amateurs out there that say that, uh, you know, I was a fool, I betrayed the convoy um, because I was kettling them on purpose in front in Wellington so the police could sweep through. These people don't understand that the convoy itself was there for a strategic purpose. They weren't there for a tactical reason. They didn't show up with weapons. They didn't show up with barriers. Yeah, hence the peaceful the peace, it was, thing that it was. Yes, it was a peaceful, charter-guaranteed protest in the city of Ottawa. It was a strategic event with strategic implications if we succeeded. It was not a tactical kinetic energy battle. And so for the people out there that are running around saying that me and Keith and all these people sabotage the convoy, they're fools. And what they're doing is they're actually sowing a lot of um, anger and divis divisive language to try to somehow monetize it. They're trying to make money off of vilifying the convoy. And these are insiders. These are some of the insiders that, you know, were there on the first day that started the convoy. And they're attacking a lot of other people out there. And they never consider the the harm to the morale that it does to the Canadian public who supported the convoy. They don't understand what people were trying to achieve. Um, you know, Chris Tamara, the the lead, the lawyers I was with, uh, and other very affluent, influential people that were at the convoy all agreed with this strategy. You know, get the trucks up onto Wellington. That's where we had to be. Get them out of the residential areas so that the people living in those areas can just go about their lives. Our beef was with the government, not the residents. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, this little camp out there that are constantly trying to rip apart the legacy of the, the convoy. And I do write about that. I, I, I had to, I felt like it was an important part of the story that yes, the convoy, it looked on the outside that it was very well organized. And in a lot of aspects, it really was like even shocking to me. Uh, but there was a time where we really had to get the ball marching down the field and, and that involves strategy. And a lot of people just don't understand what we were trying to accomplish. And, and I even talk about uh, Keith Wilson wrote a document called Road, Roadmap to Freedom. And I write about that in the book. And the reason I put that in the book, one, because it was about the convoy, is about us. But I viewed that as one of the biggest lessons learned for future protesters, German farmers, 
Dutch farmers, everybody in Europe right now that's protesting, I wanted them to look at the book and say, there's a lot of useful nuggets mm. in here that we could use over here. Even though we're European, mm. there's a lot of good stuff in there that we could learn from and use that in our cause over here. The constant theme in the book is also safe and responsible. That's a, that was, that was true from the moment I arrived, we had to be safe and responsible. And so, you know, we're seeing in Europe right now, they're scattering manure and stuff like that. They're doing things that I, I'm not there, so I can't fully appreciate, you know, what they're thinking. Or Causing what they're a bit objective. of a shit show. Yeah. But there are things that are, that gain you support in the eyes of the public. And there are things that take it away. Right. And you, it's, it's vital that you get public support. And, you know, look at what we were up against in the media. The media was never going to support us. They were never going to allow our public support to grow. They were going to do everything to make sure that it contracted. And so when you do stupid things, you win stupid prizes. And so what we were trying to do is always be safe and responsible at the convoy. But we were always trying to put the pressure where it belonged, at the federal government level, not on the people of Ottawa. Um, but it's all in the book. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, and just before you go, um, if people wanted to contribute, um, are there several sources, like several places, or is there one main? Um, right now, it is uh, the the accountabilityproject.ca uh, is a big fundraiser. It's a give, send, go. And don't okay. worry, you're not getting your bank accounts frozen uh, if you contribute to a crowdfunding thing. Uh, there's the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Okay. They do fundraising. Um, and then just various other organizations. So veteransforfreedom.ca, we have a monthly uh, fund. You can pay $5 a month, and halfway through the month, you'll be given three options of three different causes that you want to see the money go to at the end of the month. Okay. So I contribute. I'm a member, and I contribute $5 a month. And when you buy the book off of uh, Veterans for Freedom website, I donate $5 to V for F. Nice. Um, that money every month goes into a big pot and all the donors vote. So the majority rules, if they all vote on a certain cause, that's where the money goes for the oh, month. Oh, wow. So we've been doing that, I think, at least six months. <clears throat> um, Veterans for Freedom, to date, so they were, you know, were formed in March just after the convoy. Uh, so it'll be two years next month. They've raised over $223,000 in, in donations and they've donated all of it. Uh, like Drew, none of the V4F uh, leadership claim any of that money. They don't take it, they don't use it. It's a nonprofit. Sweet. And they donate all that money back to uh, not just veteran causes, but also to community causes. To, uh, there's a lot of things that V4F does in the community that's not advertised. You know, veterans do go to national war, uh, uh, monuments within their hometowns. Mm. They spend the day cleaning the monuments, cleaning the sidewalks, de-weeding, you know, doing all this stuff. Um, we're very active in the communities. Myself, I stepped down from the board uh, only because I couldn't give them the attention that they deserved. So they asked me, you know, who... Um, who could replace you? And I said right away, major retired Jill young husband. So she took my spot, stepped up and she's uh, from out West, you know, so we've got 3000 members in veterans for freedom and they've been around two years. Nice. 
Yeah. Wow. Sweet. Um, Tom, before you go, um, we would love for you to sign our table. Yeah. If you're into it. For sure. You can even draw a picture, as you can see. Uh, yeah. Here, choose something. Whatever you want. Choose, choose something pl where right. clear. Is that right here? Sure. Truth is easy. Fucking A. Just have to tell it. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thank you, Tom. And I'm you know, gonna, uh, I'm going to leave this book for you guys too. Oh, but I want to oh, sign it before. I yes, go. please, please. Um, and while you're doing that, I'm just going to give a shout out to my friend Deanna MacArthur, who was a huge contributor in terms of food and uh, way more, more than I can even explain. When it came to the Freedom Convoy, she used to help us here on the podcast, and she's a huge fan of just yeah you know all, all that went on um so whatever tud and once more shout out to nolan <laughs> yes yes <laughs> i can't forget nolan you know how i got to him um i i was doing i was doing background because uh i was in school and yep. my, my daughter was born and it was daycare time and i couldn't affair afford my share of the daycare so i was at my old reserve unit and i saw a buddy of mine i was doing uh, teaching them pistol disarming we get talking in the mess and he's like oh if you need extra money you should go do this background crap there's a facebook group i'm like all right sure next thing you know two weeks later i'm standing beside matt damon oh yeah and yeah. um horrible movie matt damon was doing bg yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> it was a terrible movie it was downsizing <laughs> In Toronto, I hated it. And uh, <laughs> so I'm like, all right, this is kind of convenient, but uh, it's minimum wage and I'm working 16, 18 hours a day. And every time I would go to set, they're like, you, come here. I'm like, oh, you're going to be a cop or you're going to be an army guy or you're going to be something in that thing. I'm like, oh, geez. So I ended up being on a, on a show and then I start helping them with like technical advising. Like a guy walked out one day, he has a Colonel rank and a general rank on his uniform. I'm like, <laughs> turn around, go back in and steal the guys. Right. <laughs> That's hilarious. So next thing, like then I got the crew calling me at home saying, listen, uh, we got questions. I'm like, okay, good. Like you call me. Like I, I'm not going to scream at my TV show or TV set. If I have the ability right now to fix this. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. On. Cause these guys work hard. I mean, the, the background, these guys work sure like they do. dogs. So oh, yeah. I, I thought, you know what? They work at, like, they pay attention to such detail. I'm going to help out with that. Because if I don't, then I don't have the right to bitch at my TV. So anyway, um, <laughs> I'm with this agent and I'm like, listen, man, if don't book me for any more shows unless it's SSE, if it's military or police. And he's like, look, if, if I book you as a janitor and they re-roll you, I can't do anything about that. I said, fair enough. I let that contract go with that guy. And then uh, there was a woman named uh, Zamerit. I don't know. I know the name. Yeah. yeah, yeah so, uh -huh. so she was booking me on, on shows for cash, non-union. <clears throat> and that, that first, that contract expired. And then I went to her, I said, Hey, do you know anyone who just does SSE? Because I feel like I'm kind of giving away, you know, uh, my time for not very good money. And she's like, yeah, I know a guy. He's just starting up his, uh, his company, FC Talent. His name's Nolan. 
So I get a hold of them and I started working for them right away. Um, and that's how I got on with Adam too. Wicked. Um, cool, man. And yeah, the only time I ever work is if it's SSE <clears throat> and it's, if it involves a gun, then I get hired and I go and. Are you full member now? No, I, no. I, cause as a, I'm to do SSE, I don't have to be ACTRA, right? So oh. do you want to be ACTRA? Uh, it's, it's too many hours. Like, what is it? 1600 hours. And then it's, uh, like, a, like a, what? 15. Like I heard there's a big fee, like a few thousand dollars. Oh no, no, no. We'll I don't talk, know we'll talk about it after. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'd rather do it <clears throat> for the, but I'm not an actor, right? Like, it's all good. I'm not an actor. hundred percent. Um, nor do I aspire to be, because I think that's a hard life to yeah. be honest, being an actor. Yeah. Uh, but I, do, I like Damon. doing, yeah. You're doing background. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you really See, fall, yeah. right? You fall from grace, man. Um, no, I I like <laughs> it. It's fun sometimes. I've, I'll admit it's a little frustrating being a, a, a background guy because, you know, the movie people have a, an idea of what they want to see on camera. And it's like, I would never do that. A hundred percent. I would uh, yeah, never do time. that. And you got to just, I, I remember once I almost shit on a guy on set because he was wearing his army hat over here and his shirt untucked. And I was like, I'm playing pretend here. What are you doing? This isn't real. <laughs> yeah. It's well, I was, real. I was on a, I was on a show, uh, recently. Um, this isn't the, really the first time that this happened, but there are demons or monsters or something coming around a corner of a hall. That's gotta be 200 yards long and we're running at them with our guns. Yeah. Yeah. Why the fuck are we running toward them when we have guns? <laughs> I'm just don't get it, but I'm there and I'm getting paid. So yeah. last time I worked, I was literally pointing my, my airsoft, uh, AR 15 at a concrete wall. Yeah. I'm like, whatever you say, man, you're paying the bill. You're paying the bill. Yeah. Um, That's hilarious, man. <clears throat> For anyone listening on Spotify or Apple, that's, uh, Thomas Penn signing his book to Andrew and I. You can get one. Amazon.ca. Sorry, the way that sounded, it was like I was watching an episode of Mutual of Omaha. Yeah. As the cheetah sneaks up on its oh brain. My God. It was really good. <laughs> play by play. It was good. You got that voice. You Thanks. can do that. <clears throat> I'm available for voiceover work. Thank you, Tom. Thanks again, Tom. Appreciate it so much. Yeah, yeah man. it was fun. It's a good pleasure to be meeting. Live. Yeah, this was uh, this was yeah such a pleasure to meet you. This was fucking awesome. Thank you. Awesome. All right, on that, uh, cut it, B.